Amen. Take your Bibles, remain standing for just a moment, and just take your Bibles and turn with me to Second Chronicles chapter number 16. Uh, I was thinking a while ago, the storm. And I, I'm from Florida. I'm from South Florida. I'm Florida cracker. Say amen. Uh, and I've been through several hurricanes, several hurricanes. And in the middle of that hurricane, there's something called an eye. An eye. It's right in the middle. I, I've been where the eye passed right over where we were. And there's something about the eye. It's a little weird. I mean, it's blowing and it's raining and it's, it's coming down. You think the world's falling apart. And when the eye comes over, it's the, it's the calmest. I mean, it ain't even a breeze in the eye. And when the disciples was in the ship and they was in the storm and here they see Jesus walking on the water, they're afraid, they're scared to death. And he said, Hey, fear not. It is. He's the eye of your storm. The most, <laughs> man, I want to preach right there. And, and, and one thing that I found out living in Florida, the bigger the storm, the bigger the eye. And, and whatever, we need to get the second Chronicles 16. Man, that's good stuff right there. Now I'm just, hey, are you in a storm today? There's something about most storms we go through as Christians. They're usually unexpected. And we don't see them coming. But I'm glad he's in the midst. Amen. I want to read just a couple verses. Second Chronicles chapter 16, verse 7. Are you there? Say amen. Verse 7. Now, we're going to talk about the King Asa. Uh, King Asa was somebody who had great promise and hope in the beginning. But something took place that changed everything. And that's what we'll talk about today. Uh, it says, and at that time, Hanani, the seer, or the preacher, the prophet, if you will, he came to Asa, king of Judah, and said unto him, Because thou hast relied on the king of Syria, and not relied on the Lord thy God, therefore is the host of the king of Syria escaped out of thine hand. Then he reminds him of what happened in chapter 14. Were not the Ethiopians and the Lubans a huge host with very many chariots and horsemen? Yet because thou didst rely on the Lord, he delivered them into thine hand. For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong in the behalf of them whose heart is perfect toward him. Herein thou hast done foolishly. Therefore, from henceforth thou shalt have wars. Verse 12. And Asa in the thirty and ninth year of his reign was diseased in his feet, until his disease was exceeding great, yet in his disease he sought not to the Lord, but to the physicians. Father, one more time, help us. Lord, I pray, help me. I pray that you'll fill me with the power of the Holy Ghost. God, you know who's here. You know what we need. Lord, you, you have the ability to change my words from my mouth to their ear, so they hear what they need to hear. And I pray that you'll just touch us now. We love you. We praise you. We are in desperate need of you. For without you, we can do nothing. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people say it. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. You may be seated. What I would like to do is kind of share uh, with you a story of, of this king and, and what he's done. Uh, when I was in Bible college, uh, we were taught that you study and you prepare and you get your your cup filled that it runs over in the saucer, uh, and then you give your people the saucer. Amen? Uh, 
but that's hard to do when you know what's in the cup. Hey, man, there is so much here. And I, and I, I, I beg you, go home, go home and read chapter 14, chapter 15, and chapter 16 to really uh, uh, reinforce what I'm trying to teach you today. Chapter 14, let's start there. Chapter 14, we find King Asa beginning his reign, beginning his ministry, if you will, if you want to use that terminology. And he is, is uh, in a place where he desperately needs God. We have a a kingdom coming against him. We have the enemy coming with a million-man army coming against him. Now, the worst part about that is King Asa only has 580,000 to face this million-man army. He's almost outnumbered two to one. And he knows his situation is desperate. He knows if God does not do something, they are in trouble. And he begins to call out unto God. In chapter 14, we find him calling to God and saying, God, if you don't show up, we're in trouble. If you don't show up, we're not going to make it. God, if you don't show up, we have gone under. And he says this terminology, I love this. He says, we rest in the Lord. The word rest there is so important. It's so important. It's the same word. If you look it up in your concordance, the same Hebrew word that we find over in chapter number 16, where he said, you relied on man. You relied on Benadad, a king of Syria. He was leaning toward them. And in the beginning of his ministry, in the beginning of his reign, he rested in the Lord. He leaned on the Lord. Same word used in Proverbs 3, where it says, lean not on your own understanding. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding, but in all thy ways acknowledge him and he shall direct thy path. Are y'all with me? Say amen. He is leaning on God. He is depending on God. He is putting his faith in God and his confidence in God. If there was one thing that God wants out of his children, it is complete faith. It is complete confidence. It's complete trust. Without faith, you cannot please God. God says the just shall live by faith. We don't live by sight. We don't live by our atmosphere. We don't live by our surroundings. We live by faith in the word of God. And boy, his response, his response tickled God. Don't you love when God gets tickled with our faith? You ever notice when Jesus was ministering here on this earth and, and somebody came to him and, and, and they doubted, uh, he gave them a lecture. But when someone came to him, uh, the, 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 the Gentile came to him, the woman came to him, he said, wow. What great faith. I haven't seen this much faith in all of Israel. Why? Because God loves when his children believe in him. And, and so God sent a prophet to him in chapter 15. He, he had faith and he chose to lean on the Lord in chapter uh, 14. And because of that, God sent the man of God to him and said, look, because you've done this, you have made the Lord happy. And because you've done this in chapter number 15, he says, if you honor God, God will honor you. Where you go, he will go. He will be on your side and God will put his favor on you. How many of y'all could use God's favor this morning? And you know what? Asa got so tickled with that. He got passionate about the things of God. And if you go home and read, go read all of chapter number 15 and you will find all the things he got passionate about. He got passionate about holiness. He began to take all the idols out. He began to take all the witches and the wizards out. He began to take all the idolatry out. And I'm telling you what, if you ever start walking with God, you'll start cleaning house. The Holy Ghost will come into your life and he'll say, this can't be here. This needs to go. You 
need to take this out. And I'm telling you, I believe with all of my heart, America needs a revival of holiness. God's people need a revival of holiness. Getting right with God. He not only was passionate about holiness, he was passionate about righteousness. Righteousness, the Bible says in in, uh, uh, chapter number 15, verse 12. And they entered into a covenant to seek the Lord God. In other words, to pursue him, to seek the Lord God of their fathers with all their soul and all their heart. What does that mean? He not only cared about the rules, he cared about the relationship. He desired to walk with God. You see, you got to understand Christianity is not a list of rules. Now, we do follow uh, commands and responsibilities that we have as children of God. But God wants us to love him. God wants us to walk with him. God wants us to seek him out. God wants us to have a relationship with him. Are y'all with me? Say amen. And boy, he got passionate about following God. So we see a zeal and an excitement and a fire in his life. He got passionate about generosity. The Bible says in verse number Uh, Verse number 18, it says, And he brought into the house of God the things that his father had dedicated and that he himself had dedicated, silver and gold and vessels. I mean, this picture is getting better and better. He's relying on God. He's trusting in God. And because of that, he cares about holiness. Because of that, he pursues a relationship with God. Because of that, he becomes a generous giver. He cares about generosity. You cannot walk with God and be stingy. You can't because God is a giver. And if you walk with him and become like him, you will give like him. Boy, he's passionate about giving. And in the very next verse, the Bible says, so God took war away and gave them peace. There's something that will mark the heart of a man who's walking with God, and that's peace. All hell could be breaking loose in their life, and they have peace in their soul. Hey, it might not be all right in the White House. It might not be all right everywhere else, but it's all right in the Father's house. Hey, I might not be well with my finances. I might not be well with my physical health. I might not be well mentally. My wife says, amen. I might not be well in a lot of places, but it's well with my soul. And when you walk with God, God will give you peace. You say, Bridget, what's the problem? What's the problem? Well, in an extended period of peace, something happened. Something happened. Something changed. He went from depending on God in chapter 14 against a million-man army to now he runs into an adversity in chapter number 16. And in chapter number 16, the Bible says he went into the treasury and took gold and silver out of the treasury and bribed the enemy king and said, come help me. And he relied on an enemy king and did not talk to God about it, did not pray, did not seek the face of God. He turned his back on God. What happened? In the beginning of our country, God blessed America like no other nation. I believe we were founded on godly I don't care what I don't care what atheist historians try to say. They try to take God out of everything. They they I don't care what they say. God blessed this nation because of religious freedom. I don't care what nobody says. And God blessed this nation. And what have we become? What have we become? What has happened? 
What would take a man that was so passionate about following God, so passionate that he even kicked out his own family out of royalty because they were not following God? They were so passionate about walking with God that they made a covenant, and if you didn't, they would stone you. Miss church again, amen? You're talking about, you're talking about jacked up for Jesus? Man, they were, so what, what would cause somebody to go that far from being so excited about God to turning their back on God? I believe in times of prosperity, it's a very dangerous thing because it would be very easy to forget God. Abraham Lincoln said in his proclamation, April 30th, 1863, the national day of fasting and humiliation and prayer. Abraham Lincoln said, we have been the recipients of the choicest bounties of heaven. We have preserved these many years in peace and prosperity. We have grown in numbers, wealth, and power as no other nation has ever grown. But we have forgotten God. We have forgotten the gracious hand which preserved us in peace and multiplied and enriched and strengthened us. We have vainly imagined in the deceitfulness of our hearts that all these blessings were produced by some superior wisdom and virtue of our own. Intoxicated with unbroken success, we have become too self-sufficient to feel the necessity of redeeming and preserving grace. Too proud to pray to the God that made us. It behooves us then to humble ourselves before the offended power, to confess our national sins, and to pray for clemency and forgiveness. Ronald Reagan said, if we ever forget that one nation under, we are one nation under God, then we will be a nation gone under. We've forgotten God. God warned the Israelites before they went into the promised land. He said, I'm going to give you houses you didn't build. I'm going to give you wells that you didn't dig. I'm going to give you vineyards that you didn't plant. I'm going to give you a place of milk and honey where the blessings overflow. But you need to be very careful. I need to warn you. I need to warn you. I want to put my favor upon you. I want to put my blessings upon you. I want to put my hand upon you. But I need you to be careful. He said, beware, Deuteronomy 8, 11, beware that thou forget not the Lord thy God in not keeping his commandments and his judgments and his statutes, which I commanded thee this day. Lest, watch this, lest when thou hast eaten and art full and hast built goodly houses and dwelt therein, and when thy herds and thy flocks multiply and thy silver and thy gold is multiplied and all that thou hast is multiplied, then thy heart be lifted up and thou forget the Lord thy God, which brought thee forth out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. What does that mean? That means this, when you're in slavery, it's easy to seek God. When it, when you're in slavery, when you're in bondage, when they're bringing whips upon your back, when you're in chains, I don't have to beg you to pray. I don't have to tell you to call out on God. When you're starving to death and you have no food in your belly, nobody has to beg you to pray. When you're sick in the hospital and you don't know what's going to happen, you don't know what the tests are going to show, nobody has to beg you to pray. When they're about to come take everything you've got, nobody has to call on God. But I'm telling you, when you're well, when you're full, when you're blessed, when everything's going great, when you're in peace and prosperity, I'm telling you, we get self-sufficient and we forget God. Oh, I want God to take this problem away. If he does, he won't ever hear from you again. The peace and the prosperity caused him to forget God. And I can't, I can't, I can't, man, I can't be too hard on Asa. I found so many times in my life when everything's going great and everything's going fine 
It's real easy to get comfortable, isn't it? It's real easy to slow up in prayer. Man, I, I remember times when we was down in the little building and we didn't even take up enough offering to pay my salary, much less pay all the bills. I didn't know how in the world we going to pay the, how we going to pay the mortgage. And man, we prayed. Oh, we prayed like we never prayed. Are y'all with me? Man, it's easy when God goes to blessing. It's easy when God goes to putting, putting his favor upon us. It's easy to forget God. You say, preacher, what's the big deal? I'll tell you the big deal. Let me give you, let me give you three things real quickly that, that happens when we forget God. Three areas of our life that's affected when we forget God. The Bible says in chapter number 16, in the very first verse, we find that he runs into adversity. Do you realize you can run into adversity when you're right with God and when you're wrong with God? And, 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 and we always, we always, the outcome's always determined by our relationship with him. And the Bible says that when he ran into adversity, an enemy king came against him. And instead of going to God and instead of praying, he goes into the treasury and he takes out of the treasury gold and silver and gives to a foreign ungodly king. What does that mean? I'll tell you what it means. The first thing that's affected when we forget God and we drift away from God is our treasure. Somebody say it with me. Is our Watch this. The Bible says, the Bible says in verse number, uh, verse number 18 of chapter 15, when he was right with God, when he was on fire for God, when he was zealous for God, the Bible says in verse 18 of chapter 15, it says, and he brought into the house of God, the things that his father had dedicated and that he himself had dedicated silver and gold and vessels. That's before. That's when we're right with God. That's when we're favored by God. That's when we're on fire for God. We have no problem bringing into the house of the Lord the silver, gold, and the vessels. But watch now when we've forgotten God. Chapter 16, verse 2. In chapter eight, or chapter 15, verse 18, it says, And he brought in the house. Chapter 16, verse 2 says, And Asa brought Do I need to draw a picture? Do you realize, do you realize that, and I, I, trust me, I didn't plan on preaching on giving and tithing for revival day. I did not plan that, but it's here. And God's trying to tell us something. The very first thing, most, most people who study church and study uh, 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 Christianity Teach us that, that it takes up to six months for a baby Christian to mature and grow enough to give anything. And most of the time when that takes place, they're usually tipping, not tithing. In other words, just giving a little bit. We believe in tithing. We believe the Bible teaches tithing, a tenth of our income. Not just tithing, but love offerings. We believe in tithes and offerings. We give to God. We believe in being generous according to our Savior. We want to be like Jesus. Amen. Up to six months to give anything, up to a year to begin to tithe at all. And, and, and we know there's a lot of people away from God because statistics say only 20% of professed Christians are tithing anything. But do you realize the very first thing, the last thing found in chapter 15 is the first thing to go in chapter 16. 
Do you realize that your wallet is a thermometer that determines the temperature of your heart? The Bible says where your treasure is, there will your If you want to know what people have a heart for, check where they spend their money. Most people have a heart for football. Most people have a heart for hobbies. Most people have a heart for all kinds of things. A lot of people have a heart for missions. A lot of people have a heart for evangelism. A lot of people have a heart for the hungry. The reason that they are so concerned and they care about Compassion International and these young people and the needs that they have because that's where their heart is. And where their heart is will determine where their treasure goes. And do you realize that people quit giving long time before they quit coming? What happens is we forget God. What's the big deal? We forget where it come from to begin with. We forget that everything we have is God's. Everything we own is God's. Everything we wear is God's. Every car we drive is God's. Are y'all with me? Everything's God. And when we forget where it comes from, we forget to return it to him. Yes, 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 yes. This preacher was praying with a young man. He said, preacher, pray. Pray. You've been preaching about tithing. You've been preaching about giving. And I want you to pray that God will bless me with a job where I can start giving. And, and, and so they prayed. He got a job making $5 an hour. Man, it was great. He was so excited. He came and was able to, able to give his tithe. And, and they said, man, this is great preacher. This is wonderful. And he, and he starts growing and God starts blessing him, gives him a better job, gives him an increase. And before long, he's, he's making about $30 an hour. And he come to, he come to the preacher and said, look, preacher, this is really bothering me uh, here lately. I've just, I'm, I'm just making too much money to tithe off of this. He said, preacher, will you pray for me? Will you please pray for me? He said, no problem, son. Let me pray with you. He said, oh, God, break him back down to $5 an hour so he can afford to tithe. Whoa, preacher, what are you doing? Wait, wait. You know what happens? We forget where it comes from. The children of Israel forgot they didn't dig that well they was drinking out of. The children of Israel forgot they didn't plant that vineyard. God did it. And when we drift from God, when we begin to forget God, it affects our treasure. Not only that, but it affects our trust. The Bible says when he was in great need in chapter 14, he called unto God and he put his faith and confidence in God and God moved on the scene and conquered the enemy for him. And not only conquered the enemy for him, if you read the whole chapter, you'll find out he gave him great spoil also. But in chapter 16, he never prayed. He never asked God. He never called unto God. But he went and he beat. Now watch this. This is what happens. This is what we do. We begin to manipulate our situation. What does that mean? We get arrogant and when we don't pray, you remember what we learned last week? That when we don't pray, what we're essentially saying is, God, I got this. I I don't need you. I don't, I don't need your help to sing. I don't need your help to preach. I don't need your help. I got this. I don't need your help with my four teenage girls. Oh, God, help us in Jesus' name. I got four. <laughs> the Lord looked down on me and said, Father, forgive him. He knoweth not what he doeth. Amen. Lord, help me. How many times has a problem risen up in your life and you begin to cram 
and try to, try to do everything in the world to figure out how to fix it. I could sell this child and maybe pay this bill over here and I can, I can. That's a father of a girl. I guarantee you right there. Y'all with me? We, we come to an adversity and we try to figure out. And you know what happens? Let me tell you what happens. Let me, let me, let me, I'm, I'm not, I'm not a prophet, but I'm a prophesy right here. You start trying to figure it out on your own and you start wigging out because you figure out you can't. And instead of going to God, we go to a medicine bottle. I need something to calm my nerves. I need something. I can't figure out my, I just got everything just falling down upon me. Have you talked to God? And let me, let me, let me, let me give you a hint. OMG don't count. Oh, I'm sorry. We've got people don't have texting in here. Oh my God does not count as praying. Are y'all with me? Most people come to my office for counseling. The very first question I ask, have you prayed about this? Well, I kind of, no, that's why I'm talking to you. Like I'm the one that's, you know, supposed to. Have you ever heard the phrase, well, Rachel, I tell you, it's bad. It's so bad. It's so bad. All we can do now is. When that's the first thing we should have done. That's the coolest socks I've ever seen in my life. son. I just want to tell you that right there. That's great. Amen. Three services, and that's the first time I've seen them. Amen. That's wonderful. How many of you in the building realize that maybe we need to spend a little more time in prayer? But see, when we forget God, it affects, it affects our trust. And our confidence wanes in the Lord. But lastly, the worst part about the whole deal, it not only affects our treasure, it not only affects our trust, it affects our testimony our testimony you see this is what happened and it's going to happen to you too if you belong to god now if you don't belong to god this ain't going to happen uh but if you the bible says and i'm not cussing here my dad was in the last earth that was him by the way waving the cane he's an old-fashioned baptist preacher from way back and he gets happy i just hope he don't hit nobody with a cane amen oh lord help us um is is that when we get away from God, if we belong to God, according, according to the New Testament, the Bible says, whom he loveth, he chasteneth. And if you're without chastening, you're a bastard, not a son. Now, that word means illegitimate. In other words, if you belong to God and you get away, he's coming. And if you do something you're not supposed to do, he's going to send the preacher. And the Bible says the man of God came to him and said, what are you doing? There was a day in your life. Don't you remember? Don't you remember the Ethiopians? Don't you remember praying and God destroying the million men army that came against you? What are you doing? Man of God got all in his face. And you know what? You know what? We need that today. We don't need everybody to be telling us everything's fine. If I got cancer, I don't need a doctor to say, you're, you're great. This is wonderful. Just, it's, you're, you're having a, it's all, no, no, no. I want somebody 
to rear back, look me eyeball to eyeball and tell me the God's honest truth. A lie will not help anybody. We need men of God to stand and tell the truth. And if we're away from God, we need them to get in our face and say, what are you doing? And you know what God will do? He'll come into the church house. He'll come into the church house and he will not only pull in your driveway, he'll park in your garage and go to beeping the horn. How many of y'all know what I'm talking about? You think your spouse is told on you? You think the preacher's got your house bugged? You think he's been following around? No, no, no. There's a Holy Spirit that knows everything about you. He knows your need before you even know it. And he'll put it in the word of God and the man of God will bring it to you. Amen. And you know what happened? When that happened, he got angry. Like many have done in this building right here. I tell you what, that ain't none of your bit. No, 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 no. You, you're talking to the mailman, brother. <laughs> and we get angry. So how do you know? Because I have. I have. God's gotten in my stuff before. So you need to straighten your act up. And you know what? It's very easy to get angry at the messenger. And according to chapter number 6, Asa got so mad at the preacher, he threw him in prison. Y'all with me? Now, we won't do that today, but we'll quit coming. I'll go to another church. That's the smart thing to do. Go to one that's going to lie to you. Go to one that's just going to use you for what they can get out of you. Are you going to go to one that's going to love you enough to tell you the truth? You see, he lost his testimony because he abused. He disrespected the man that God sent to help him. And not only that, not only that, he began to abuse the people. You know what that tells us? And it's all right here. I'm not making none of this up. Read the chapter. It's right there in verse 16. If we can't get along with God, we won't get along with anybody. I'm telling you, when I'm, not, when I'm away from God, happy people irritate me. Y'all know what I'm talking about? Now, look, some of y'all need to take the halo off and put it in your pocket. We don't believe it no how. Come on. You know you're not right with God. God's been dealing with you. God will get, and, and then you'll go in the church house and somebody will be happy and they'll be shouting. You think, what's he happy for? And people that are away from God, people that has forgotten God, they're the most, they're the most irritable people in the world. Because they're not right with God, so they can't feel God when they come into his house. When they go out in the world, they don't feel right because they're not of the world anymore. So we just make everybody mad. We just grumpy, grouchy all the time when we're supposed to have the joy of the Lord. We're supposed to be experiencing joy unspeakable and full of glory. It's funny to me, some of the people who think they're the holiest look the miserablest. That's probably not even a word, but I made it up. Miserableness. And, and we're supposed to be salt of the earth. We're supposed to, we're, we're, the way we are should make people want to be like us. I don't want to be around these people because I'm afraid I'm going to catch what they got. When the whole time, it's because they've forgotten God. And the worst part about the whole deal, the worst part about the whole deal was the last part that we read. The Bible said then King Asa, 
He got diseased in his feet. Diseased in his feet. Now, I've read that over and over and over again. I'm saying, now, there's something to that. Because God is not going to just put something there. He's just not. And I begin to look and research through the word of God about feet. Do you know the Bible says that when, when, when Moses came to the burning bush, that God said, take your shoes off because you're on. It was a place of worship. Now, we don't worship these walls and this floor. It's sheetrock, it's carpet, it's concrete, it's wood. But this is where we meet with God. And wherever the presence of God is, that makes it holy. And the Bible says that the woman who came to Jesus, Mary, she came and began to weep and, and, and anoint his feet and kiss his feet and worship him. And you know what? Today in America's church, worship is diseased. It's weak. It's anemic. It doesn't have the hand of God on it. And God's telling me there's so many places that don't know anything about true Holy Ghost worship because they're diseased in their feet. And the problem's not in the White House. The problem's not in the State House. They can't fix anything. The problem's not with the sinners. Sinners don't need revival. Sinners need resurrection. It's God's house that needs revival. He says he was diseased in his feet. Not only only is it a representation of worship, but it's a representation of victory. Joshua brought enemy kings out of a cave and he called all the elders of Israel and said, come put your feet on their necks, which represented victory and power. But my Lord said unto the Lord, rest here till I make your enemies your footstool. Victory. And you know what? We have Christians all over America today that quote the verse, greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. We have the power greater than than any man could ever imagine or fathom. Yet we're dying of addiction. We're dying of weaknesses. We have no victory over disease. We have no victory over depression and discouragement. And we are diseased in our feet. Churches need revival. Say, preacher, how is our church going to get revival when us Christians get revival? It starts with the individual. Jesus said, I stand at the door and knock. Now, the significance to this is this is during the Laodicean church age. This is the last letter. This is when the, the ultimate, the, the, the total picture is lukewarm. And I believe all over, I, I, I have the privilege to, the, to preach in a lot of places. And what I am finding is Laodicea, cold, lukewarm, not in, but not out. Just, hey, preachers come here and they feel the Holy Ghost in here and they think I can put that in my pocket and pull it out at their church. It don't work. And here's the problem. We're in an age today, especially in America, where it's a lukewarm spirit. But I stand at the door and knock. Now watch, here's the key. If any man, not people, man, singular, 
individual will hear my voice and will open the door. I will, hallelujah, I will come in and sup with him and he with me. And I don't have time to preach on that supping, but it's good stuff right there. What does that mean? Everybody in this church can be dead as four o'clock and you experience revival in this chair right here. Revival is determined by the individual, not the crowd. So you can't blame being in a dead church because you just might be the spark that starts the fire. Give him praise and glory. It's good to see you tonight. I appreciate you being in the Lord's house. And uh, they're talking about being in the Civic Center. And uh, most time when I've been at the Civic Center is to watch wrestling. Y'all say amen. I didn't say wrestling. I said wrestling. That wrestling's what they do in the Olympics. Wrestling's what they do in Civic Centers. Some of y'all look like you was here last night for something too. Amen. I do appreciate the opportunity to be here. You can be seated. And I appreciate the great singing tonight. I appreciate Brother Malcolm giving me the opportunity to be here. And uh, the Lord did put he and I together a good few years ago. And uh, when God first brought Brother Malcolm to Coleman, he was gone for a couple of days. And uh, he'd only been there, I guess, seven or eight months and asked me to come fill in for him on a Sunday. And I guess his theory was, if there's anything left, this is the will of God. And so uh, that was my first trip here. And I'm thankful that it hadn't been my last. It's good to be with you tonight. I do appreciate my wife being able to come with me this evening and be here with me the next couple of days and looking forward to what the Lord's going to do. If you love the Lord, say amen. Amen. If you love His Word, say amen. Amen. Thank God for the Word of God. I think what preacher said about the sound, I'll tell you what I'll do, better than your ticket price, come back tomorrow night and see if we got any better. Amen. That'll work too, won't it? All right, open up your Bible tonight, if you will to the book of 2 Samuel. And when you get to 2 Samuel, find chapter 14. I'll let you remain seated, and that'll be all right. We'll look at the Word of God this evening, then I'll pray, and then I'll give you what's on my heart. 2 Samuel chapter 14, and uh, when you get there, let me hear you say amen. amen. I want us to begin reading tonight in chapter 13, in verse number 38. Then we'll work our way into chapter 14. The Bible says, So Absalom fled and went to Geshur and was there three years. The soul of King David longed to go forth unto Absalom, for he was comforted concerning Amnon, seeing he was dead. Now look in chapter 14, verse 1. Now Joab, the son of Zeruiah, perceived that the king's heart was toward Absalom. Joab sent to Tekoa and fetched thence a wise woman and said unto her, I pray thee, feign thyself to be a mourner and put on now mourning apparel and anoint not thyself with oil, but be as a woman that had a long time mourned for the dead. And come to the king and speak on this manner unto him. And so Joab put the words in her mouth. Now, I want you to look at me right here. This lady is an actress that was paid to play a part. 
she is given a story that was written by Joab and this story was concocted that they might highlight what's wrong in David's own life. Here's what she says. She said, my Lord, the king, I've got two sons. Said they were working in the field and one rose up and killed the other. She said, now my family is trying to kill the son that's left. She said, I'm not going to have anybody left if they take him. And David so boldly and so clearly says to her, you tell them to leave that boy alone. Matter of fact, his exact words, he said, if they've got a problem with you, you tell them they've got a problem with me. She said, Lord, are you sure that's what you want to do? He said, yes, ma'am. If they want to take him, they got to come through me first. Now, I want you to notice with me in chapter 14, verse number 12. Then the woman said, let thine handmaid, I pray thee, speak one word unto my Lord, the king. And he said, say on. And the woman said, wherefore then hast thou thought such a thing against the people of God? For the king doth speak this thing as one which is faulty. Notice this. For we must in that the king doth not fetch home again his banished. For we must needs die and are as water spilt on the ground which cannot be gathered up again. Neither doth God respect any person. Here's my phrase I want to see tonight. Yet doth he devise means that is banished, be not expelled from him. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you tonight for the word of God. Lord, I want to thank you that the Holy Ghost lives inside of our heart. Thank you, Lord, that when the word and the spirit come together, There is a life-changing combination. I pray now for every person that's here, for all the young people that are here, all of the married couples that are making it through life, all of those on the other half of their journey would just speak to every one of us tonight. Lord, I stand unable, I stand unworthy, I stand unfit, but I sure am thankful that you're the one that's gonna do the work tonight. Help us now. I'll give you all the glory and all the praise in Jesus' name. God's people said, amen. I want you to notice with me tonight that in this passage of Scripture that we have looked at, this is a very interesting portion of Scripture. You see, David had sinned. He had committed adultery with Bathsheba. Because of this sin, the man of God said that judgment was coming to David's house. How many of you will give me a witness right here that you cannot sin and get by with it? I could use a little more help than that right there. The Bible teaches us that God is a righteous God. Be not deceived whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. You will not sin and get by with it. God sent judgment to David's house. As a result of that judgment, his son Amnon, supposedly in his own mind at least, falls in love with his half-sister Tamar. He puts her in a situation where he forces himself upon her and now her brother Absalom finds out about it and Absalom comes and plots the murder of this boy Amnon. Now David gets all bent out of shape and David has Absalom kicked outside of the kingdom. 
said, I don't want anything to do with him. I don't want to see him. I don't want to hear him. I don't want to know anything about him. And David had Absalom taken out of the kingdom. Now, I want to say a couple of things by way of introduction tonight. First of all, I want you to notice the problem in this text. Isn't it amazing that the very things that David is so mad about, he is guilty of himself. Amnon was guilty of sexual misconduct, but I don't have to take David back very far where he himself stands guilty of the same thing. Absalom is guilty of plotting a murder. But was it not David that handed the papers into Uriah's hand that would lead him to his death? I'm trying to tell you tonight, we ought to be real careful about pointing out everything in everybody else's life because if we look real close, we all cut out of the same cloth. There's a problem here. Then I, I notice this. I notice that there is pride here. We read in chapter 13 that David longed to go forth unto Absalom. I want to say this, and I want you to hear me. Anger, oh, I'm going to need an amen right here. Anger will take you a whole lot of places, but pride will keep you there. (laughs) I mean, that should have got a holler from the balcony right there. Anger will take you a whole lot of places, but I promise you this, pride will be what keeps you there. Anybody ever said something and about the time it left your mouth, you wasn't as mad as you was when you first started saying it and you wished you could have grabbed it and pulled it back? But pride will leave us in a place that anger has carried us to. And David longs to see Absalom, but his pride is keeping Absalom out of the kingdom. Now I want to say something else just by way of introduction that I see a parallel here. You see, this story that this girl tells to David, this was not a true story. This was fabricated and it was written to show David that he is in this exact same situation. She said, I've got two sons. David had two sons. She said, one has killed the other. That's what happened in David's life. She said, now they're wanting to get rid of the one I got left. That's what David was doing. But ladies and gentlemen, when David heard this story, he spoke so clearly, he spoke so wisely, he spoke with such great perspective. He said, ma'am, you need to let bygones be bygones. What's happened in the past, it ought to stay in the past. You don't live there. You go on and love the one you got left. That's pretty good advice. Except the problem is David could see it in her life, but he couldn't see it in his life. How many of you are guilty of seeing what everybody else ought to do, but we can't seem to make sense out of our own situation? Brother Malcolm, I'll just confess my own sin tonight. As a pastor, I've been in the same place 12 years. And I believe that it is honestly the supernatural power of God that will give a pastor discernment and wisdom. I have problems come across my desk and before they can finish the story, the Holy Ghost has already turned the light on. I can tell them what happened wrong. I can tell them what they need to do next. And it's God helping me see that. And I'm thankful for that. But at the same time, I look at my own life and can't tell which way's up or which way's down. Because if we're not careful, we'll have insight into everybody's problems, but we fail to see it in our own. Now, 
in the middle of this story where she is acting and she is portraying something to David, she makes a statement. And it is a statement that brings us to my thought tonight. It is a message of mercy. Is anybody thankful for the mercy of God? Notice the phrase in verse number 14. She said, yet doth God devise means that is banished, be not expelled from him. I am thankful for the mercy of God. You hear preachers talk about mercy and grace as though they're two different things. And certainly there is a textbook definition there. But the word mercy, here's what it means. It literally means leniency coming from the grace of God. Mercy, I guess I could put it to you like this. Mercy is God being lenient with us and not giving us what we deserve. Is anybody in Cumberland, Alabama glad that God has bent the rules on our behalf a time or two? No, 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 don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that there are no rules. I'm not saying that there is no judgment. I'm not saying that there are no repercussions. But you know what mercy is? Mercy is when I have broken the rules. But thank God he lets them bend just a little bit. Mercy is when I ought to have the judgment of God. But instead I find myself walking in the favor of God. Thank God for mercy tonight. Mercy. Mercy. Now there's one phrase here that I want to break into three pieces. It's found in verse 14, read it again. Yet doth he devise means that is banished, be not expelled from him. First of all, notice this with me. Notice the mind of God's mercy. How many of you believe that Bible was put together by God on purpose? And the word that is used here is the word devise. It literally means to plan to calculate, it means that God in his foresight thought it through and he put together a plan. I want you to understand something tonight. Mercy is not the afterthought of God. When man sinned in the garden, God the Father did not scratch his head and say, what are we going to do with them now? When Eve and Adam partook of that fruit, God did not get on the edge of his throne and say, oh no, they've messed up my plan. Ladies and gentlemen, listen to this little country preacher. Before there was ever a tree in the Garden of Eden, there was already a cross being prepared on a hill called Calvary. Thank God, before blood was ever shed of a lamb in the Garden of Eden, the blood of the Lord Jesus was all ready to be poured out on Galgotha's hill. You see, God in all of his glory and God in all of his wisdom has already devised a plan. That's why Ephesians said, hallelujah. That's why Ephesians said that before the foundation of the world, he's already a lamb that had been slain for us. You see, the mind of God devised a plan for mercy. How many of you could agree with me right here that God had a plan to save the entire world? I heard about a little fella was sitting at home one day and a knock came to the door. He went and answered the door and opened it up and there stood a man with a name tag on his shirt, had a clipboard in his hand, He said, young man, I'm here from the Census Bureau of the United States. 
He said, I'm here for the numbers of all the people that live in this house. Little boy said, well, there's me and there's my brother, Billy, and then there's my sister, Sue. And the fellow said, no, 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 son. I'm not here for their names. I'm here for their number." Little boy looked at him and said, well, I'm sorry, mister. Ain't nobody around here with numbers. We just all got names. And I'm glad that he had a plan for the world. Y'all hearing me tonight? I'm glad that he had a sovereign plan to save the whole world. I'm glad that before Adam and Eve was ever taken out of the garden, there was already a way that had been made to save mankind. Listen to me. They did not have to search through heaven and find one willing to be a sacrifice before this world was ever spoken into existence. He had already surrendered to the cross. It was God's devised plan. He had a plan to save the world. But I want to go a step further and I want to thank him that he had a plan to save me. A little old boy in the hills of South Tennessee, a little place called Bucks Pocket, Tennessee. Y'all ever heard of it? It's all right, Lord hadn't either, amen. That's where I found the Lord, or I should say where the Lord found me. It sure wasn't no civic center, and it sure wasn't a thousand people. It was a block building with no carpet on the floor. We had them old fold-down movie theater chairs. Y'all y'all know them wooden ones that come up and down with you, and you better be a step ahead of them. And somebody say amen. We, we had a shouting church, but it wasn't the Holy Ghost. His Baptist getting hung up in them wooden, in them wooden seats. It was on a Sunday night. My daddy was up preaching. It was just an ordinary Sunday night to everybody else that was there. But inside of that little old block building, no carpet on the floor, no paint on the walls, just old hand-me-down chairs. The thrice holy God of glory showed up in that little church. He walked up and down those seats and those rows. I saw myself for the first time as a sinner who's lost and dying and going to hell. Thank God I went about three foot forward to a little six-inch rise of a platform and knelt and the Son of God changed my life. Now, I'm trying to tell you that yes, God the Father devised a plan to save the whole world, but I sure am glad that he had a plan when it came to saving me. I don't know how you came to the Lord. I don't know if it was a radio preacher. I don't know if somebody was on the television slinging both barrels of this gospel gun. I don't know if you wandered into a little country church. I don't know if you came to a big church because somebody brought you. But everybody in here ought to find a place to shout glory to God that when we was lost and undone, he devised a plan to save us. She said... David, God doth devise means. We see the mind of mercy. It came from the Father. But then I want you to notice with me, secondly, notice the means of mercy. Now, the first word was devise. Then she said, he has put together means. That means, glory to God, that means there is a way behind the will of God. You see, the Bible says that it's not his will that any should perish. 
but I'm glad that nobody has to perish because there's been a way provided for the will of God. Y'all hearing me tonight? The mind of the Father sat down in a staff meeting in glory before this world was ever created. And God the Father said, if we make man in our own image, he's surely going to fail. And before he could say it, God the Son said, and I'll be willing to lay down my life that they can be redeemed. And God the Holy Ghost said, I will go to the four corners of the world. I'll speak to every heart that's ever born. I'll find a way to reach every person that ever breathes air on that planet. And I'll give them a way to know about what the Son does. The will of God has now been given the way of God. I won't say this without apology tonight. If it offends you, praise God, just consider yourself offended, all right? There's only one way to ever get to glory. Oh, I know that's rare preaching in this hour. Hey, some of y'all watching too much Oprah and ain't reading enough Bible. Say amen right there. I don't care who it bothers. I don't care who it upsets. There's only one way to glory. If Buddha would have been away, Jesus would not have gone to the cross. Hey, if Allah would have been away, he would not have had to suffer up Calvary's hill. But thank God, he prayed in the garden, if there be any other way, let this cup pass from me. But that cup did not pass. He turned it skyward and drank every drop of sorrow, every drop of suffering because Jesus is the way. He's the way. He's not only the way, but he's the only way. He is the means to the mercy of God. I was reading after Dr. John Phillips and in John Phillips' book on the epistle or on the, on the gospel of John, John Phillips said this. He said that a missionary years ago in the deepest, most remote part of Africa, had reached every village in his area that was on the map. Finally, he came to the last spot on the map and the couriers that had carried his luggage and had helped him make his way, they quit. They said, we've gone as far as we can go. This is all that we know and we're not going any further. He said, but I have heard of a place that's not on the map. Hallelujah. He said, I have heard about a spot that's not registered on the map. And he said, I want to take and I want to go to that place. They said, sir, we don't know where it is, let alone how to get there. We cannot go any further. Missionary consulted the chief of that village. He said, is there anybody that can take me to that place that's not listed on the map? The chief said, in the morning, if you'll be ready, I have a man that can get you there. The sun began to rise and that missionary with his few belongings sat waiting on his guide. As the sun broke, he saw a large, tall, strong native man with a machete hanging on his side. His arms were cut and scarred. The skin had healed but left the marks in his body. And they turned and they stepped into the jungle and they headed to that place that was not on the map. There was no trail. There was no sign that anybody else had come this way. And hour after hour, he followed that native man through that jungle. Occasionally, there'd be marks on the trees where it looked like an axe or a machete had cut it, but it had healed over. Finally, as the sun began to set, he looked at his guide and he said, are you sure you know where we're going? He said, sir, let me put your heart at comfort. 
He said, glory to God. He said, I'll tell you how I know where we're going because where we're going is where I came from. Amen. He said, that place that's not on the map, that's my home. He said, the the scars, the marks on my body, he said, I received them when I came from there to here. Those marks on the tree, I'm the one who put them there. He said, sir, not only, glory to God, I'm about to take me a lap here in a second. He said, not only do I know the way, but he said, you can rest assured I am the way. You'll not get there without me because there was no way until I came from there to here. Ladies and gentlemen, I want to thank God tonight that there was no way to that city that's not on the map, but glory to God, the Son of God became the way and he blazed the trail for us. How am I going to get there? How? I feel like Thomas. Lord, how can we go if we don't even know the way? And Jesus said, Thomas, you've been living with the way for three and a half years. You've watched the way. You've prayed with the way. You've slept beside the way. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. You see, Jesus, he is the means of God's mercy. What the Father devised, the Son delivered. What the Father planned, oh, thank God, the Son performed. And what was in the mind of God, hallelujah, what was in the mind of God before creation was fulfilled in the body of the Son as he suffered and died. Oh, God, Deviseth means Jesus is the means. I read a story about a little orphan girl that lived in an orphanage. And uh, there was just something about this particular child that just kind of rubbed everybody the wrong way. People would come to select a child to take home and it just seemed like they always skipped right over her. They, they would pick everybody around her Month after month, she got neglected. Year turned into year, and nobody ever chose her to give her a new home. It got to the point that even the staff developed an attitude against her. And everybody there was just done with her for no particular reason other than they just didn't care for her. One day, the schoolmaster said to the staff, he said, I can get rid of her, but I got to have a reason. He said, I can't kick her out for no reason. I, I can't have her move for no reason. He said, but if you can find a reason, I'll get her out of our hair. A couple of days went by. One of the teachers came in his office after lunch. And he said, I caught her breaking the rules. said, I caught her sneaking out at lunchtime. Said every day after we eat lunch, she goes behind the playground. She crawls under a broken piece of the fence. And said, every day she's sneaking out of the school property. The next day, the principal and some of the others went and watched and sure enough, ate her sandwich, went around behind some bushes, crawled under a broken place in the fence, went down the sidewalk of a busy road and they caught her standing on the corner by a large tree. The principal came around and grabbed her by the arm and said, I caught you, what are you doing? And he noticed, Brother Malcolm, that her hand was sliding a piece of paper in between the bark of that tree. He thought she's communicating with somebody. She's she's trying to get somebody to come get her. She's getting something from the outside world. And he took that piece of paper. He said, what's this all about? 
The little girl, trembling and scared, just stood there silent. That man took that piece of paper and he unfolded it. And when he opened it up, he read these words in her own little handwriting. Hallelujah. It said, to whoever finds this, I love you. He said, what does this mean? What's this about? She said, all my life, I've been picked over. All my life, I've been picked on. All of my life, I've been neglected and rejected. And she said, I know that if I felt like this in there, glory to God, somebody has to feel like I do out here. And she, she said, I may not know them, but I want them to know that somebody loves them. She said, I don't even care what they've done. I want them to know that somebody loves them. I don't know who they are or where they've been, but I want them to know that somebody loves them. On the cross of Calvary some 2,000 years ago, God wrote a letter that said to whoever finds this, I love you. And he hung his son up between heaven and hell. And anybody that'll come to him, thank God they can experience the love of Christ. You see, Jesus Christ is the means of God's mercy. And it doesn't matter. Somebody said, preacher, how them Old Testament get saved? How them Old Testament saints get saved? I'll tell you how they got saved, same way you got saved. Looking at the cross. The only difference in us and them is they was looking forward by faith and thank God we're looking back by faith. Hey, it never was a lamb that took away the sin of the world. It never was the blood of a dove that took away the sin of the world. It was their faith that one day the Lamb of God would come. It is our faith that the Lamb of God did come. Jesus has always been God's means of mercy. We see the mind of His mercy. Then we see the means of His mercy. Everybody doing all right tonight? I want to show you my last little thought and I'll be done. Watch this. I want you to notice the motive of his mercy. Why would the father think this up? Why would the son go through all the torture he went through to deliver it? It's found in the last part of our verse that his banished be not what? Say it with me out loud. Expelled from him. <laughs> what is the motive of God's mercy. The motive of His mercy is that there's a whole lot of us that ought to be outside the kingdom. I'm going to need some help right there. There's a whole lot of us that ought to be kicked out of the kingdom. We have done things that caused us to break the rules and stand in line for the judgment of God. But I want to say hallelujah. When I stood in line for judgment, he bent the rules on my behalf and God's given me mercy. What does mercy do? Mercy is God's way of allowing those who ought to be kicked out, letting us stay in the kingdom. I've got, me and Miss Amy, we've got one son. He's 10 going on 18. Can I get a witness right there? And, uh, yeah, yeah, wow's right. He, his name's Dalton, but we should have named him Alpha and Omega because he is the beginning and the end. Yes. Yes, he is. Somebody said you should have gave him a, a Bible name. I said I would have, but I don't think Legion would have went over too well. 
for he is many. Say amen, Brother Malcolm. <laughs> I, he goes to a real good Christian school there in our community, and, and he was in kindergarten, K-5. I, I went to pick him up one day from school, Malcolm, and he got in the truck, and I noticed he kept looking over his shoulder while we was pulling out. He kept looking. <laughs> he kept looking behind us. We eased out. We, we got about halfway home, and that, that's when he figured it's too far to turn back. Amen. We got about halfway home. I seen him fold his legs, hiked his khaki britches up, rolled down his sock, reached in and pulled out a handful of number two pencils. I said, son, ain't you supposed to leave them at school? Ain't, ain't, it, ain't it against the rules to bring them home? He said, duh, why do you think they're in my sock? <laughs> I mean, when you're dealing in contraband, you don't carry it out in plain sight. That's what I'm dealing with. You pray for me. Amen. That was K-5. God's honest truth. I study in this verse. We have church on Thursday night. I was sitting in my office on a Thursday morning reading and studying this chapter. And I'd been reading that verse and I, I knew there was something in there in that he, he, he deviseth means that his banished be not expelled from him. Boy, I've been studying that all morning. I, I left the office about 2.20, rode to town to get Dalton and he got in the truck and once again, it always happens halfway home. <laughs> we got about exit 12 and he said, Daddy, what's the difference in being suspended and being expelled. <laughs> Words that will warm any parent's heart. And praise God around my house, they warm a child's behind as well. Amen. Yeah, yeah. And we don't give spankings at our house. No, we give whoopings at my house. Amen. Yeah. And once again, if you're bothered, just, just, I'm going to get some t-shirts made tomorrow and say, I got bothered at Revive 2013. <laughs> All right? No, you know, you know the difference in a spanking and a whooping? A spanking is a few licks. A whooping is a few licks short of eternity. <laughs> That's right. So, he's up against the door, you know, where I can't reach him. And he says, What's the difference in being suspended and being expelled? I said, first of all, I'd like to know why this is relevant information. He said, oh, no reason, no reason. I, I was just wondering. And I, folks, I still hadn't heard from the school, so I don't know like if he got away with something or if he just had a real good talking to, but something brought that conversation up. What's the difference in suspended and expelled? And, and I wasn't even being spiritual. I was trying to figure out how to whoop him and drive all at the same time. <laughs> y'all don't look at me like that. They, some of y'all, you had your flip-flop off tonight whooping youngins in the back seat. <laughs> then pull up at church. Oh, pray God, Brother Malcolm, we ready for revive. <laughs> Kids in the back seat look at you like you schizophrenic. <laughs> you don't whoop that flip-flop so much, you go to scratch your foot and they all shrivel up in the back. He said, Daddy, what's the difference in suspended and expelled? Now, I wasn't being spiritual at the time. 
I wasn't on the clock. Somebody say amen. I said, son, I said, take it from a man who is qualified to give you this definition. Suspended means you can't come back for a couple days. But expelled, that means get your favorite eraser back from your buddy. Get all your stuff out of your locker. Tell that little girl in sixth grade, you'll be seeing her later because you ain't never coming back to this school again. That's the difference. Suspended for a little while, but expelled. Do not pass go. Do not collect 200. You done for good. And while I was talking to him, (laughs) Holy Ghost carried me back to our text and said, you know what mercy is? Mercy is that a whole lot of us should have been expelled. I'm talking about we should have been kicked out for good. Do not come back. You're done. But thank God, I got testified tonight. I have been suspended spiritually a time or two. Oh, yeah. Some of y'all ain't. I'm going to go ahead and say it again. I didn't stutter. I have been suspended spiritually. I've got behind this pulpit and found out Jesus, Holy Ghost, God the Father, there's in me, but they didn't have much to say. I have knelt on my knees to pray and felt my words bounce off the ceiling tiles and land back beside me. Isn't it amazing that God can be omnipresent, but he does not always manifest his presence? Isn't it amazing that when we sin against God and when we walk in rebellion against God, he can remove his sweet Holy Ghost presence from us and it don't take us long to figure out that the one I was walking with yesterday, I'm still his and he's still mine, but he's not talking to me like he used to. I've been suspended. Anybody else going to be honest? I've been suspended. But I want to go on record. Glory to God. I want to go on record as saying, I've been suspended, but thank God because of mercy, I've never been expelled. (laughs) Hallelujah. Glory. Hey, that'll make a Lutheran shout right there, amen. That'll make a Southern Baptist deacon nod his head real hard. That's how good that... That'll make a Methodist grunt. Somebody holler, amen. That's what mercy is. Mercy is I should have been kicked out. But thank God he made a way. (laughs) See, I broke the rules. And some folks try to pretend there ain't no rules, but there are rules. Some people try to tell you that there is no judgment, but there is judgment. Trust me, he'll send the foxes into your field on fire. There is, There are rules. There is judgment. But I want to say glory to God. Hallelujah. Mercy is when God bends the rules and instead of kicking us out, he loves us and restores us. Out. I'll tell you this and I'll hush. I, 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 ain't, I ain't fighting for preaching time. This is the third time I've preached today and about the 11th time, well, 12th time since last Sunday, all right? So I, I'm not looking for a place to talk. Trust me, I'm, I'm doing what the Holy Ghost tells me. I grew up, my daddy's a preacher. I'm talking about old-timey leather lung, fireball, hacking, spitting. Hey, if your, face, if your face ain't red and your throat ain't sore on Monday, you'll bless God compromiser. Somebody say amen. 
That's where I grew up. My daddy's a great man of God, still is, still pastoring. And, and, and he always had Christian school, went to Christian school all my life. And uh, my daddy was my pastor, and he was my principal. Oh, yes. He's like Santa Claus. He's everywhere. <laughs> Except without all the gifts and the ho-ho-ho stuff, I mean. <laughs> and, I, and my daddy, God bless him, he, he believed in Ridlin. He had a 52-inch belt named Ridlin, and he gave us doses on a regular basis. Mountain. Do you know how terrifying it is when you're this tall and the belt that is about to whoop you is that tall? He says, son, go get my belt. You got to get a stepladder just to get it out of the closet. That's, I mean, that's life-changing right there. <laughs> I was at school one day, and I know y'all going to find this hard to believe, but I had done something I wasn't supposed to do. Y- y'all want to know what it is? Bless God, I ain't telling you, you bunch of gossiping Baptists. I ain't telling you what it is. <laughs> They sent me down to his office, to the principal's office. And I knew what was going to happen when I got there. Oh, I'd done been down there before. I knew what happened when you go down there. And they called him and told him what I'd done before I even got down there. Listen, we live in America. A man is innocent until proven guilty. I was railroaded with no even chance of giving my side of the story. I remember, I remember, I, I, I walked in the door of his office and he was sitting back there behind that desk. And, 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 and about that time, everything went kind of shaky and blurry and I blacked out for a little bit. <laughs> he said, they told me what you did. I said, you mean they told you their version of what I did? <laughs> he said, no, I know you. They told me what you did. And said, son, they probably toned it down on your benefit just a little bit. And I said, yes, sir. He said, now, you know what you did was wrong. I said, yes, sir. He said, now, you know I've got to whoop you for what you've done. I said, yes, sir. He said, I want you to come here. He said, and put your hands on the desk. Man, I done been there. Pray God, my fingerprints etched into that wood. I'm talking about, I, you know, assume the position. I was very aware <laughs> Acquainted with this procedure. <laughs> I'm sweating right now thinking about it. God, I got I gotta quit telling this story. My daddy came preach for me about a month ago. I was scared the whole time he was there. I was on my best behavior. My church was this is wonderful. We need to put him on staff. Amen. Pastor patrol. Hallelujah. He said, He said, put your hands on the I put my hands on the desk. He got that paddle out and I and I was ready. Oh yes, I was ready. Then he said, I want you to raise your right foot. I thought, dear God, what, are we just getting bored with the regular whippings? I mean, like, are we, 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 we trying to spice it up a little bit, try, try some new things? I mean, are you getting tired of whooping me the regular way? Now I'm freaked out, you know what I'm saying? How, how are we talking like that? I mean, what do you got in mind? I raised my right foot. But man, I felt that paddle come down about like this. On the bottom of that tennis shoe. Now he's got me freaked out. Okay? I'm like, is dad having a midlife crisis? I mean, like, did somebody murder somebody at school and they're next in this line? I mean, what's going on? (laughs) 
And he, he laid that paddle on the desk and he said, he turned me around, he looked at me, he said, son, I never will forget it because it's the only time it ever happened in my life. He said, son, consider that mercy. And he said, now go back up there and act right. And ladies and gentlemen, I want to tell you tonight, there have been a whole heap of times I've stood before the God of all glory. Guilty, guilty as charged. <laughs> I know about nothing to say in my defense except yes, sir. And I sure am glad when all the judgment of God, when all of the holiness of God, when all the righteousness of God was hanging in the balance ready to fall on me, I sure am glad God said, hang on a second. Son, you know I got to whoop you. (laughs) Y'all ain't hearing me tonight. Son, you know I can't let this get by and not be dealt with. But I sure am glad that mercy came between me and the Father. (laughs) Now, Let me say something. How many of you are thankful for the mercy of God? I mean, ain't that something that he deviseth means that is banished, that's us, be not expelled from him? Ain't that wonderful? I mean, isn't that wonderful? But let's not forget the context. This lady is telling David to remember that because she said, David, you've got somebody in your life. Yeah, I figured y'all get real quiet about right there. Said, David, you got somebody in your life that's broke the rules. You've got somebody in your life that's on the outside of the kingdom. And she said, David, it wasn't too long ago that you yourself was standing in need of mercy from God, but now you've forgotten what it's like to give mercy when God has given you so much mercy. And every one of us in, I believe it tonight, I believe every one of us in here are thankful for the mercy of God. But I wonder how many of us have got somebody in our life that we've kicked out of our kingdom because they've broken our rules. How many of us have got somebody that we've pushed away? We don't want to hear about it. We don't want to see it. We don't want to talk to them because they've done something wrong against us. I come by this evening to tell you that if God's given us mercy, don't we deserve and don't we owe to give them mercy as well. <laughs> now, I'll say this. Whoever's doing invitation, get them ready to come on. Let, let me say this. Let me say this. <laughs> There's a whole... I'm going to need one more good amen out of y'all if I can get one. There's a whole heap of people. That's going to be real honest. Some of y'all are scared to say it because people I'm talking about sitting real close to where you are right now. <laughs> There's a whole heap of people that I don't want to treat like Jesus treated me. Oh, yeah, you ain't got to see, man. I know it's truth. There's a whole list of people that I don't want to give the same mercy that he's given me. But, folks, we owe it to them because he gave it to us. All right. It's good to be back in a place where we can worship tonight. Amen. Preacher was teasing me about going out to smoke. And he knows good and well I wouldn't burn something that tastes that good. Can somebody say amen? (laughs) Y'all don't look at me like that. I'm in Coleman, bless God. 
Every one of y'all got rings in the back of your Levi's. Hallelujah. <laughs> Tell me. Amen. I'm talking to you women too, praise God. I know where I'm at tonight. Woman on the care team back there hugged me, left a snuff stain on my jacket. <laughs> praise God. Amen. That's all right. <laughs> Aren't you glad that we have a place called the church in hours like this? Brother Malcolm, I'll be honest with you. I don't know how people make it without places like this. There is so much trouble and so much difficulty. How in the world do people survive without somewhere like this to come and get help? Reminds me of two old country boys. They's from the outskirts of Coleman, Alabama. And you're out there where you live. Where, where, where the Dollar General is the mall. Somebody say amen. <laughs> y'all, y'all, and look, and, and, and don't even clap if you don't know what Clover Valley is. All right? Because you, you, you faking. If you don't know what Clover Valley is, you ain't been to Dollar General. <laughs> Rich folk think that's a subdivision. Clover Valley. No, that, that's, that's toilet paper, that's macaroni cheese, that's water, Clover Valley, amen. <laughs> These two old boys was standing out in the field one day working. Big old plane went over about 30,000 feet. And they stopped and looked up at that plane and one old boy, he said, man, I wouldn't want to be up there in that thing. That other fella, he wasn't real smart, but he was a thinking man. And he looked at it and he said, well, I'm just going to tell you the truth. I wouldn't want to be up there and not be in that thing. <laughs> That's kind of how I feel about the church. We got our problems and we've got our difficulties, but I sure am glad it's a good thing to be in in times like this. And America tonight is in a mess. We need the help of God. And isn't it amazing, though I ain't trying to preach yet, but I'm going to go ahead and say this. Isn't it amazing that nobody, nobody was tore up when our morals fell apart, but when our money started crumbling, everybody starts panicking. I got news for you. We need holy revival more than we need a revival on Wall Street. But it is bad. Times are tough. Matter of fact, uh, we support out where I'm at, me and Miss Amy. We didn't even go on vacation this year. I put her and Dalton in the truck and I ran by holding pictures of the Grand Canyon. <laughs> Next year I may take them to the beach. I don't know. I, I found some good shots of Panama City. I may print them out. <laughs> take you, we better get in the Bible quick tonight. It's getting bad. Open up your Bible to the book of John, find John chapter 21, and I'm going to ask you to stand up if you will, and let's read the Bible together, and we're going to read just, I don't know, just a couple of verses, won't be many, but there is a thought in one particular verse we're going to look at tonight. John chapter 21, if you love your Bible, say amen. amen. If you love the Lord, say amen. amen. John chapter 21, verse number 18. 
Notice what the Bible says. Jesus is speaking and he says, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, when thou wast young. Anybody want to stop and sing precious memories right there? (laughs) When thou wast young, thou girdest thyself and walkest whither thou wouldest. But when thou shalt be old, thou shalt stretch forth thy hands and another shall gird thee and carry thee whither thou wouldest not. This spake he signifying by what death he should glorify God. When he had thus spoken this, he saith unto him, will you say those two words with me out loud? Follow me. Then Peter turning about, seeth the disciple whom Jesus loved, following which also leaned on his breast at supper and said, Lord, which is he that betrayeth thee? And Peter seeing him saith to Jesus, Lord, and what shall this man do? Boy, he's a good Baptist, ain't he? Jesus trying to talk to him and he's all pointing fingers worried about what's going to happen with somebody else. Notice this. Jesus saith unto him, if I will that he tarry till I come, what is that to thee? And he says it again. Will you read it with me out loud? Follow thou me. Heavenly Father, I do love you tonight and I love you because I know there's no lovable thing in me. God, I don't believe that you love me because you saw something in me. Lord, I believe you love me because you saw yourself in me. And outside of you tonight, we are all a hopeless mess. But God, with your grace and with your spirit, you can do things in us that's absolutely without explanation. God, fill me tonight. I've got enough sense to know that if anything happens here eternally, If anything happens here that will bring glory and honor, it'll go straight to you for I cannot and will not do this by myself. I need your touch tonight. I love you and I'll thank you for everything you do. In Jesus' name and God's people said, amen. You can be seated. I want you to notice tonight that there is a phrase in verse 19. It is found again in verse 22 and it is found first of all in Matthew 4 verse 19. Jesus says to Simon Peter, follow me. He says again in verse, what is it, 22, follow thou me. Now here's the reason I find that important. I'm going to need a good amen right here. This is the last conversation that we have recorded between Jesus and Simon Peter. The very last thing that he ever says to him is follow thou me. Now here's why I find that significant. Because in Matthew chapter 4, this is also the very first thing Jesus ever said to Simon Peter. When he found him on the side of the Sea of Galilee washing his nets, Jesus called him and he said, follow me. Thank God Simon Peter laid down his career. He laid down his life. He laid down his passion and he followed after Jesus. Then we come to the end of his journey. Now the Lord says again two separate times, follow thou me. Now anybody that's been saved a little while, I'm going to need you to give me a good witness right here. The secret to the Christian life, I'm going to need some help now. The secret to the Christian life is getting up every day and following after Jesus. Now I want to be real plain right here. 
There's some people that are going to hang their Christian walk upon major experiences in life. They go from one major miracle and they don't breathe, they don't rest, they don't have joy until they get to the next major miracle. And they are addicted to the highs in the Christian life. But I want you to listen to this little country preacher. If you're gonna have power with God, it will not be waiting on big things to happen. It'll be getting up every day and following after the Son of God every day. Follow thou me. Now, I remember the Lord saved me as a young man, called me to preach when I was just 10 years old. The Holy Ghost sat down where I was and as plain as you and I talking, he called me to preach and I know that. And can I tell you that God will take somebody like me and he'll do stuff in me that never could have got done if it wasn't for him. <laughs> I, I, I have had the privilege to pastor in the same little place for 12 years in the same church. Only church I've ever pastored. Now, I've pastored about 10 churches in that church, but it's been at the same place. Can I get a witness right there? (laughs) I've had the opportunity to preach all over this country. Out west, I love it. Out west, Montana, Colorado, Wyoming. God's let me preach all the way down south Florida where all them Yankees go and spend their winter time. They need preaching down there, amen. I've had the privilege of preaching up in Washington State and Oregon. I was preaching in Washington State one night, little old mountain church back in Granite Falls, Washington. I was preaching up in a big way and some folk don't know how to go to church like we know how to go to church. They had those windows propped open in that little country church and that cool air was flowing through. I was preaching up a storm. I said, I need a witness right there. And about that time, a billy goat tied up outside went, I said, praise God, if that's only one I get, I'll take it. (laughs) Brother Malcolm, they didn't know I'd been preaching to goats all my life. He he and I had a relationship. I've been able to preach up north. I I just got back from Rochester, New York, way up there. I I knew I was in trouble. I hadn't even got out of the airport and I had been called a redneck to my face. (laughs) They didn't know that is a compliment where I come from. And they had just passed the Gay Marriage Act and then I was glad like they knew which way I stood on all that stuff. God's let me preach all over the country and I've been overseas now eight, this will be our ninth year going to the little country of Albania and taking the Bible and putting it out in that former communist now it is an entire Muslim nation and God's let me go every year and put the Bible in the hands of people that never have had a Bible. I'm trying to tell you that this thing of walking with God, it doesn't mean that you sit back and you wait on one great big opportunity. Somebody said, Brother Jonathan, when did you surrender to be a pastor? I never did surrender to pastor. Somebody said, when did you surrender to be an evangelist? I'll do 32 meetings a year, but I never have surrendered to be an evangelist. 
Somebody said, when did you surrender to be a missionary? I'll go this year and I'll put Bibles out in a foreign field where I don't speak the language, but I never did surrender to be a missionary. I'll tell you what I did do. I laid my life down on an altar. I said, God, you can have everything I am. You can have everything within me. All my hopes, all my dreams, all my expectations, they're yours. And when you begin to follow him every day, He'll take you places that you could have never gotten by yourself. But you don't do that by waiting on big opportunities. You do that by following him every day. If you know I'm telling the truth, holler amen. Now I want to show you, Simon Peter has lived a life of following after Christ. And the Lord is now speaking to him prophetically And how many of you know that in order to understand where God is taking you, you've got to understand where he's already taken you. And he says in verse number 18, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, watch this, When thou wast young, thou girdest thyself, and walkest whither thou wouldest. Number one, let me say this tonight. When you follow him, some things will be done by you. Everybody get that? Let me try it on this side, see if it goes over any better. When you follow him, some things will be done by you. I like y'all much better than these people over here. In other words, in this walk with God, he does not expect me just to be a rider on this bus but I may have to get off and push every now and then. He does not expect me just to come and sit in a chair and take up a place and be ministered to, but thank God if I'm really following him, there'll be some things in my life that I am doing for the glory of God. It may not apply here at Temple, but I go a whole lot of places where they could change that old hymn standing on the promises to sitting on the premises. Amen. And we get this idea, we get this mentality that we are to be served and that we are to be ministered to. And and some of us, we show up to church and we want to criticize everything that's going on around us, but we never have tried to do anything to help out what's going on around us. And the singers get up and sing with all of their heart and we sit with folded arms like, bless me if you can. The preacher gets up and preaches, spits his tonsils to the back wall and we yawn and walk out half-hearted. I'm here to tell you tonight, God did not save me just to take up space in a church house, but thank God there ought to be some things in my life that I do in the kingdom of God. Hey, I don't want to live and die and never lay up any treasure on the other side. If you follow him, there'll be some things done, say it with me, by you. Now, I like Simon Peter because he was a mess. Can I get a witness right there? I mean, I mean, he was prone to cut folk. He was prone to cuss people. He was prone to to go back fishing. I understand a lot of where Simon Peter's coming from. He's a mess. But there's one thing about Simon is that in his strength, he used it to do some things in the kingdom of God. 
I'm going to need some help right here. Simon Peter was a man's man. Oh, yes. Simon Peter was a man's man. He was a strong man. I know that by several examples of scripture. First of all, the Bible tells us the story where they were going over the sea and they toiled in rowing all night. Look at me right here. You don't row a boat all night if you are a manny petty kind of guy. Somebody say amen. Y'all don't get me preaching now. We'll cut this thing down back where everybody's comfortable tomorrow night. Yeah, 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 yeah. You ain't shopping in the herbal essence aisle and then going rowing all night. <laughs> Reminds me, the old boy said, said his wife told him he needed to get in shape and she bought him a rowing machine. He said, praise God, didn't take him very long to figure that out. He went and bought an outboard motor put on the back of it. <laughs> Simon Peter was a man's man. I know he was a man's man because when they came to take Jesus in the garden, Simon Peter pulled out his pre-Obama band concealed sword and shoot took the ear off of one of them. Amen. I, I didn't stutter this thing's on. I said it just like I meant to say it. I, and look here. One man with a sword taking on a whole platoon of people. He was a bad dude. Can I get a witness right there? He's a bad man. Simon Peter was a man that had strength and he had power and he had youth. And here's what I like about Simon Peter. He said, I'm not just gonna go to glory shouting all the way, but thank God I'm gonna be a servant. I'm gonna put my hand to the plow. I'm gonna do some things that'll bring honor and glory to God. I want some things done by me. Simon Peter preached on the day of Pentecost and 3,000 got saved. Simon Peter sat down under the authority of the Holy Ghost and penned eight chapters in your King James Bible. 166 verses flowed from the heart of Simon Peter. Simon Peter was that little rock in which the big rock began to found the first generation church. Hey, glory, I'm about to preach myself happy tonight. Simon Peter had the keys to the kingdom hanging off his belt loop. He was a man of God that, thank God, helped found and ground the first generation church. I'm trying to tell you, if you follow God, some things will be done by you. I'd been preaching there at the little church where I'm pastor now. Been there about two or three, I guess about two or three years. Had a little fella come to church one Sunday morning and when he got there, he came with some friends and he was in a wheelchair had a muscular degenerative disease and it affected his legs and he couldn't walk, he couldn't hold himself up. He came the first Sunday in that wheelchair and they rolled him right up to the very front of the auditorium. I preached that morning and I couldn't help but notice him while I was preaching. His hair hung down in his face and it was, it was dyed jet black. His fingernails were painted black. He had on a black trench coat and black cargo pants and black combat boots. And he sat there on that front row with a hollow look in his eyes. I was preaching through Revelation and I got through with that sermon that morning and those glory to God, 
Those eyes that had rolled in hollow now had tears running out of the corners of them. That little fella pulled the brakes off that wheelchair, rolled about 10 feet to the front and got sure enough born again. Brother Dan Boatman was my assistant pastor at that time. And Brother Dan, he's a great big old boy. He's about 6'5", about 240 at that time. I preached with great boldness when Dan was my assistant pastor. (laughs) Brother Dan and I would get up on Sunday morning and we'd go over to Michael's house, that young man, and we'd pick him up and we'd bring him to church. Brother Malcolm, the first Sunday we picked him up, I, I learned very quickly the history behind those hollow eyes. He did not know who his daddy was, but his stepdad was a member of a biker gang, the Iron Cross, and ran a biker bar across the river in Phoenix City. His mother was a practicing Wiccan witch. I'm talking about a certified broom rider. Can somebody say amen? (laughs) That's who he lived with, a, 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 a drunk stepdaddy that ran a biker bar and a mother that practiced seances in their living room. We'd go over and pick that boy up for church and I can't tell you the times that I was putting his wheelchair in the trunk. Brother Dan was putting him in the back seat and his mama was on the front porch cussing us and his daddy, stepdaddy, was sitting on the porch drinking beer, laughing at us while she cussed us. And every Sunday that little fellow would be waiting for us to come get him and bring him to church. Summertime rolled around and we was carrying him home after church one day. And uh, he was sitting in the back and Dan and I was talking and he said, preacher, he said, I've kind of been thinking about some things. And he said, the Lord told me that one day I'm going to get up there and preach like you do. I'll just be honest with you. I didn't think much about it. I said, amen, Michael, that's wonderful. Dan and I kept talking. A few minutes later, he spoke up. He said, the Lord told me something else said, the Lord told me when I get up to preach, I'm not going to roll to the pulpit. He told me I'm going to walk. He's now got my attention. And I never will forget it, Brother Malcolm. Here's exactly what I said. I mean, this is a quote. Here's what I said, because I didn't want to give him false hope. I didn't want to say something to build him up. I didn't know. Here's exactly what I said. I said, buddy, if you can believe it, I can too. We rode on down the road and carried him home. We went to church camp that summer and had about 150 teenagers in a little log cabin ch- uh, chapel there at the camp. And I had all them preacher boys sitting on the front two rows. I'm talking about, I love being around young preachers. That's full of God, full of fire. I'm talking about, look like fighting dogs on the end of a chain. Arrgh. I mean, just waiting for somebody to get out of the way so they can have their turn. Boy, I'd call on three or four of them every service and got down to about Wednesday night. I said, all right, if you hadn't preached yet and you're a God-called preacher, you boys raise your hand. And nobody raised their hand except for Michael. I thought, now, now, now Lord, <laughs> it wasn't too long ago this boy showed up cloaked in darkness with a broom-riding mama <laughs> and, a drunk, and a drunk stepdaddy. I said, you preachers know how to, I said, is there anybody else that hadn't preached yet? Come on, boys, don't be shy. Who else hadn't preached yet? I didn't know what he was going to say. 
So then, I'm going to go ahead and give y'all in on a little pastoral secret. I knew I had to preach him, but I gave him that disclaimer. Yeah, I can tell y'all don't know how preachers work. I gave him that disclaimer. I said this. I said, now, Michael hadn't been saved very long. (laughs) See, what what I was doing was, if he gets up here and messes this all up, it ain't going to make me look bad. Somebody say amen. (laughs) Yeah. Now you know what he's doing when he does that. I said, now, Michael hadn't been saved very long. I said, he's come from a real bad background. I said, but he loves the Lord. I said, you just come. You ain't got to preach, son. You just come share your heart with us. I set myself up to where if this went south, I still going to look all right. He's sitting there in that wheelchair on the front row and he motioned for one of my men to come over there. I done forgot about the whole walking to the pulpit thing. He calls for one of my men to come down to the front row. Brother Doug walked over there to where he was and I seen him reach down and take that seatbelt on that wheelchair and popped it loose. Brother Malcolm, he lunged out of that chair and grabbed Brother Doug by the waist. Those little legs no bigger around than toothpicks look like. Brother Doug began to walk backwards. and That little crippled body staggering behind him. Step after step. They got all the way to the pulpit and he let glory, let go of Brother Doug and he lunged over on the pulpit and he held on to the front of it and his knuckles was white and he took us to the scripture where Jesus went through the temptation of Christ and I've heard good preachers get messed up trying to preach that. Let me just say this, Jesus was impeccable. Not only did he not sin, he could not have sinned. He who knew no sin became sin. He got over there in those deep waters of Jesus going through that temptation. And I'm talking about preached it gun barrel straight. I'm talking about he laid it out there just like it's supposed to be. He is a preaching up a storm. He said Jesus wasn't just the son of God. He was God. He said Jesus, when he was tempted, he didn't fight with his own power, but he went back to the scripture to show us how to overcome temptation. I'm talking about this boy preached the house down for seven minutes. He got through, motioned for Brother Doug. Doug, he grabbed a hold of his waist and took those little steps back to his wheelchair. I got up behind him and said, that's one of my converts. I've taught him everything he knows. Spent countless hours with that young man. (laughs) And he sat down in that chair and he did not know that the boy that he had held on to his waist all the way to the pulpit and back had been struggling with the call to preach for three months. (laughs) And the boy that had walked him backwards to the pulpit had been saying, Lord, you know I can't do it. (laughs) You know that I don't have the ability. You know that I can't stand up and preach. While that little crippled boy was staggering to and from, the Holy Ghost said more when he stood up than he did when he was standing behind the pulpit. (laughs) I wonder how many of us here in Coleman tonight at the Temple Baptist Revival have been sitting back telling God all the reasons why we can't, 
Lord, you know I don't have time. You know I can't commit to that. You know that I get nervous helping people. You know that I don't want to be over involved. You know I don't want to burn out. And I come to challenge somebody tonight. I come to get down where you're living and tell you, bless God, if we're going to follow him, there's some things ought to be done by us. Some things will be done by us. But number two, can I say this tonight? Some things will be done by us. This is my home team over here, all right? Some things will also be done to us. <laughs> now, 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 watch your Bible. Simon Peter starts out in verse 18, and he's young, and he's healthy, and he's strong. And Jesus said, you're the kind of man that can roll all night. Glory to God. You're the kind of man that can pull out a pocket knife when an army shows up. You're the kind of man that'll jump over the side of the boat and take a chance on walking on the water. But Simon, as surely as some things are done by you, if you follow me, some things will be done to you. Listen to me. This thing of serving Jesus It's not gonna all be unicorns, rainbows, and cherries and ice cream. There's gonna be some hard times if you're gonna follow this man named Jesus. You know why Simon Peter in verse 18 has gone from a healthy, strong young man to somebody that another man has to dress him, another man has to walk him because in the ministry and while serving God, some things have been done to him. He's broken down in body. He's broken down in mind. He's broken down in spirit. He's had some persecution. Matter of fact, he would go on to die as a martyr because in the ministry, there are some things that are gonna be done to you. How many of you remember when you got saved and started serving God and then you figured out everybody wasn't happy for you? And the rest of you who did not raise your hand, hold on, it's a coming. How many of you remember when you figured out that everybody was not gonna jump up and applaud you serving God? Matter of fact, I'm gonna go ahead and preach while I'm here tonight. There's folk you think are gonna be for you and you're gonna get out in the middle of it and find out they're against you. That man goes right there. You're gonna find out people that ought to be cheering you on. Instead, they're on the other side dragging you down. Everybody's not gonna be your cheerleader. Everybody's not gonna be an encouragement. Everybody's not gonna help you run your race. There will be some things done to you. I remember when I was, I I still like to think I'm a young preacher. I'm 35, that qualifies, don't it? It, it does if you're 35. Somebody say amen. <laughs> I remember when I was in Bible school and I, I learned how to preach in jail. Now, my daddy was a pastor, but he, he, he was very unimpressed with my talent and ability. And he never did let me preach at the church. He got me down preaching in the jail. When I was 14, I was preaching in jail every Sunday. And now that I mention that, some of y'all look pretty familiar now that I'm... <laughs> I think... We may have met once or twice before. And that's why we get along so good. I, I learned how to preach, same place you learned, listen to it, amen. <laughs> I learned how to preach in jail. And I tell you, I love, I still love preaching in jail. First of all, because you have a captive audience. And, 
and, and, and you are, you are fresher than them Matlock reruns they're getting. Somebody say amen. I still like that gray suit he wore all the time. I, I learned how to preach in jail. But we'd go down there and I'm talking about, we'd preach in one floor and then if they didn't have a preacher, we'd go to another. We'd preach sometimes three or four hours on Sunday in the jail. I'm talking about preaching the paint off the walls. Come to church one Sunday. My daddy got up and said, all right now. He said, I know a lot of you guys are going to the jail. He said, we need some preachers down at Cobus, the convalescent home. Said, we need some preachers in the nursing home. And said, we need somebody to go. Well, we got talk. Said, you know what? We go to jail, we preach from one to three or one to four. It wouldn't be nothing just to go down there to the nursing home and preach. So we decided we'd do both. Now, the only thing was, was we didn't have enough sense to change sermons between the jail and the nursing home. <laughs> Brother, Brother Bolin, I was down there preaching on stuff at the nursing home. They just wish they could have been guilty of I, I was preaching on sin and they're singing precious memories. How they linger. <laughs> you say you ought not act like that in church. It's the only place I go. I got to act like this here. Don't go over well at Walmart. Trust me, I've tried it. <laughs> went to the nursing home one Sunday afternoon. My brother Jason went with me. He's a great singer. We went to the nursing home and, and he was going to sing three or four songs and I was going to get up and preach. He got up in front of me and he sang Beulah Land and he sang a couple of them old, uh, old mountain hymns and boy, them old folks, I'm talking about this, worshiping it was sweet. God was in that place. I thought, glory, I'm fixing to bless this crowd. I had my Bible open up Psalm 23. Praise God, I was gonna walk them down by them green pastures. I was gonna take them down there by the valley of the shadow of death. I'm talking about I was gonna let surely goodness and mercy sit down in that place. I got up to preach what I'm telling you is my hand before God. I got up to preach. I laid my Bible down. I said, Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not, and before I could say want, an old lady on the front row said, shut up. <laughs> Not exactly the witness I was looking for. I thought, I, I, I'll just go on anyhow. That I shall not want, shut up. Shut up, shut up, shut up, shut up, hush. You say, what do you do? The Bible says honor your elders. I shut up. <laughs> I, was, I was dumbfounded. I thought, I, I guess you don't want to go to the green pastures this morning. <laughs> I was trying to figure out a game plan. This old man on this side gets up. He got his walker. He looks at her. He says, why don't you shut up? We like him. Why don't you shut up? <laughs> you know what I did? Praise God, I got my Bible. I went on down through them green pastures by myself. I slipped out by the valley of the shadow of death. <laughs> I 
got in my truck and went to the house. I did not want to be on the front page of the newspaper for inciting a riot at the old folks' home. Oh, no, don't, don't, don't act like you're all big and bad. Hey, they take them tennis balls off the end of them canes and wear you out, son. That's like a holster for a weapon. They take that tennis ball off, boom. But not mess with old people. They'll put in their teeth and bite you, son. I got out of there. <laughs> but you know what I found out? Y'all, y'all know what I found out? I found out everybody ain't gonna holler amen. I found out everybody wasn't gonna want me to sign their Bible in the back of the room. I found out that there's going to be people that should have been cheering for me, but instead they was pulling against me. And ladies and gentlemen, if you serve God, there will be some things done to you. (laughs) Oh yeah. We we already here. We might as well go ahead and have church while we're here. You'll sign up to work in that nursery. And some little snotty-nosed 20-year-old girl will come in there and look at you like, what have you been doing to my baby for the hour and a half that I've been in service? You'll, you'll sign up to park people out in the parking lot, wind blowing, rain falling, and they'll drive right by you like you ain't even standing there. <laughs> yeah, just as I... Some of y'all need to come pray right now. I seen you. Don't look at him, honey. If you look, he'll know we saw him. Don't look at him. <laughs> Men in yellow shirts diving in the bushes. You acting like you ain't seen them. You'll sign up to teach that Sunday school class and people won't show up. You'll, you'll take food to the home of somebody who's going through a trial or a valley and they'll act like it didn't matter. And the devil will climb up on your shoulder and he'll say, why in the world are you going to do this? Why in the world are you going to sacrifice? Why in the world are you going to throw your life away? I want you to listen to me right here. I do not do what I do because of you. I'm glad you're here tonight, but I didn't come to Coleman because I knew you was going to be here. i tell you why I'm here tonight. Because the sovereign son of God climbed up on the side of Calvary. He poured out his life's blood. He saved me from an eternal hell. That's why I'm here tonight. That's why I'm doing what I do. And if you're doing it for approval this way, you ain't gonna last very long. But I sure am glad there's only one direction I gotta check in. And thank God when things are done to me, I can keep carrying on. <laughs> Y'all doing all right tonight? I ain't boring you, am I? I but my... I, I need a little therapy right now. You said you do counseling. Do you normally do it in front of a thousand people? <laughs> I'd been pastoring about two years. And little old building that we was meeting in was a, it used to be a shop for a construction company. And we had one bathroom in there and we was going to renovate it and remodel it, make it nice. I said, we're going to have a work day at church on Sunday. I showed up work day, eight o'clock on, on Saturday rather, not Sunday. I said, work day at the church, Saturday at eight o'clock. I showed up Saturday at eight o'clock. And there wasn't nobody there but me. I waited till nine and there wasn't nobody there but me and Jesus. Somewhere around 10, I'm pretty sure he left when he heard all that stuff I said. And that was just me. (laughs) Amen. 
I ripped out that sheetrock in that bathroom by myself. I hung up new sheetrock. I tore out that sink, put a new one in, put up light fixtures. I was laying tile, running that handrail around the side, trying to make it I worked in that bathroom by myself till 1030 that night by myself. Jesus wasn't even there because I done, I done run him off, offended him. <laughs> I got to the house. Y'all ready for this? I need counseling now. Feel free to jump in whenever you feel like you got something to say. Got to the house, my phone rang. It's one of my men. He said, preacher, he said, I thought I'd let you know that there was a men's meeting about you today. <laughs> I said, there was. They were supposed to have been one in the bathroom at eight o'clock this morning. I think y'all got the wrong location. <laughs> I said, what was it about? Here's what he said. Y'all ready for this? Y'all ready? Here's what he said. He said, well, he said, we just kind of feel like you try to do too much by yourself. <laughs> now you girls know what I'm talking about when you take the phone and you remove it from here and you just bring it around to here cause you ain't worried about listening you just got some things you need to say yeah I pulled it on around here I said I want to tell you something bless God if you'd have been up there helping me I wouldn't have been doing it by myself And sometimes even well-meaning people are going to do things to you in the work of God. And we need to stop and ask you this tonight. How many people do you know? How many people do you know that are sitting at home instead of at revival? Because in the work of God, they had some things done to them. Couches are full of people tonight that could be making a difference at Temple Baptist Church, but they got their feelings hurt. They wore them on their sleeve. They had the wrong motivation. They were waiting on the wrong expectation. And because something was done to them, they dropped out. And I came to give you a fair warning tonight. You sing in this choir. You help with that first impressions. You teach a small group. Whatever you do, you better mark it down. Some things will be done to you. Simon Peter, boy, it's an amazing thing. I hope I'm helping somebody tonight. Simon Peter had the keys to the kingdom. He walks up one day to the temple. A man sitting there said, will you give me some change? And Simon Peter said, silver and gold have I none. He didn't say, well, we didn't go by the ATM on the way to temple this morning. You know what he said? He said, I don't have a dime to my name. You think about that. A man that's got the keys to the kingdom ain't even got a nickel in his pocket. There'll be some things done to you. Simon Peter was placed in the Roman jail. I've been in that jail every year for the past eight years. I've stood in Simon Peter's cell under that courthouse and under that prison. It's a room about 10 foot by 12 foot. It filled up with ice cold spring water and Simon Peter, an old man, broke down in body, broke down in spirit, sat inside that prison cell. Did you know that Simon Peter's wife was martyred for the sake of the gospel. Fox's book of martyr records to us the occasion in which Simon Peter's wife was taken and martyred. As they carried her away from Simon Peter, she stopped, history says, and she looked back at Simon and Simon Peter said these words according to Fox's book of martyrs. Simon Peter looked at his wife who was headed to be, to be murdered and he said, remember Christ, remember Christ, remember Christ. 
And he watched his precious wife go and lose her life for the gospel's sake. Trying to tell you some things are going to be done to you. Matter of fact, Simon Peter himself was martyred. He was crucified. How many of you know what I'm about to say? When they took him and they put him on the cross, he said, do me one favor. Don't put me in the ground like you did Jesus because I'm not worthy to even die like he died. Put me in the ground upside down. And Simon Peter was on a cross upside down where he gave his life for the cause of the gospel. Look at me right here. If you're going to serve the Lord, some things are going to be done. Say it with me. To you. But I got a third point, and I can't leave you at to you. But I want to say thirdly tonight, if you follow him, everybody doing okay? Everybody doing all right? If you follow him, some things will be done for you. (laughs) Hallelujah. Now, I've read this verse all my life. I've preached this verse probably a dozen times. And I'd always read it, preacher, in the negative context. And one day the Holy Ghost turned my eyes, opened them up and said, look at it, look at it again. But when thou shalt be old, thou shalt stretch forth thy hands and another shall gird thee and lead thee whither thou wouldest not. Simon Peter had laid his life down on the altar of sacrifice to the point that he could not dress himself. Y'all ain't hearing me tonight. To the point that he could not go where he wanted to go. And Jesus said, yeah, you're going to go through some hard days, Simon. But glory to God. But when you can no longer do for yourself, I'm going to make sure there's somebody there that can do for you. (laughs) Brother piano player, Will you come, please, I don't need, will you come and do that song, uh, Too Many Miles, Too Many Valleys. Get ready to do that. I want y'all to sing it in just a few minutes. But get, go ahead and get ready to play that. Brother Michael, I thought about this. The judgment seat of Christ. It's where we'll all go and we'll stand and we'll give account for what we've done with our service, not with our sin. Somebody shout glory. Our sins were judged on the cross. But our service, what we did for the Lord, now think about this. I, I've been running around with preachers long enough to know when we get to the judgment seat, there's going to be a whole lot of them big shots trying to get in the front of the line. Yeah, they, they want all their crowns. They want all their trophies. They want all their applause. They want everything that's coming to them. And they're all jockeying for position in the front of that line. And I can see an angel stepping out, looking around that multitude and pointing to the back and calling out a little feller and motioning for him to come to the front of the line. <laughs> Glory. He walks to the front, and his hair's shaggy. His beard's long and unkept. I like him already, amen. His robe's a one-piece garment that's just pauper's apparel. Sandals are worn out, tattered and torn. And he comes to the front of that line. Then big wheel preachers begin to interview him. Where did you pastor? He said, oh, I, I never pastored nowhere. Where did you preach? What sermon did you preach in history? He said, Lord, have mercy. I, I couldn't even stand up and testify, let alone preach a sermon. 
well, what books did you write? What, what did you author? What, what scripture did you pen? What great doctrine did you hand down to the church? He says, I, I can't even read, let alone write nothing. And they said, well, what in the world are you doing up here in the front of this line? He said, well, you don't know me, but maybe you'll know the fella I worked for. You ever heard of a man named Simon Peter? You see, when Simon was in that Roman jail, I went down every day and made sure that he had something to eat. When Simon was in that jail, it was cold and damp and his old bones was a-hurting. And I'd go down and make sure he had a warm jacket on. I said, as a matter of fact, I'd not only feed him, but I can't remember the times I wiped the crumbs out of his beard and straightened his hair. Says, as a matter of fact, the day that they took him and they crucified him upside down, he said, I was the one that he laid his hand on my shoulder as we walked down that path to judgment and said, I touched his hand for the last time before they nailed him to that cross and flipped him over upside down. He says, you may not know me, but you probably know the one that I helped. I wonder tonight how many of us have held back from God because we're afraid of what it's going to cost. But I come by to make you a promise. Thanks be to God, He doesn't owe anybody anything. And whatever you do for Him, He will repay you. He will make sure that you are compensated for your sacrifice. Can I tell you one more thing real quick? Can I do just one more thing? Let me ask my home team. Can I tell y'all one more thing? They're fixing to go to Dairy Queen, but I'm going to tell y'all one more thing. My grandmother, my grandmother, born and raised in the home of an atheist, her daddy, my great-grandpa, not only didn't believe in God, but hated anybody that did. Back in the early 1920s, they had a revival there in Ringgold in that little valley up in North Georgia. My grandmother was a senior, I believe, in high school, a senior or a junior. After school, the teacher kept her in the class, and she was a straight-A student. The teacher kept her in the class. She came to her afterwards. She said, Frida, she said, the reason I've kept you here, she said, because everybody in the school has been going to revival. And she said, Frida, everybody in the school has gotten saved except for you. My grandmother said, well, my, my daddy won't let me go to revival. And thank God for a teacher who brought revival to her. <laughs> my grandmother, raised by a mean atheist, bowed her head in a classroom and got saved by the grace of God. She went home to her daddy and on that Sunday... First Sunday after she got saved, she got up. Not a little girl, a a teenager, 17, 18. She got up, put her dress on Sunday morning, went out the front door. He said, said, Frida Bird, where are you going? She said, Daddy, I got saved at school this week. And she said, I'm going to the church down the road. He grabbed her by the head of her hair and threw her in the yard pulled his belt off and beat her till she couldn't stand up. And as my grandmother laid there in her own blood, hair matted, face 
bruised and busted. He said, no child of mine is going to be an ignorant Christian. And he said, I don't want to hear another word about church and I don't want to hear another word about saved. Her mama came and carried her in the house and laid her in the bed. They thought she was going to die. They washed her and cleaned her up and that week went on and she got better. Her mama washed the blood out of that little sack dress. Next Sunday rolled around. She got up, put on that same little dress, headed out the door. He said, free the bird, where are you going? She said, Daddy, I told you. I got saved down there at that school. And she said, I know you don't like it. She said, but I'm going to church. And we beat her again. And on the third Sunday, she pulled out of the bed, put that little dress on. And when she went out the door, he grabbed her by the arm and he said, if it means that much to you, you can go. But don't bring it back here. But there's just one problem with a God as big as ours. You can't tell him where he's allowed to go. And you sure can't leave him at church. <laughs> and my little old grandma got saved, got full of the Holy Ghost. She's a shouting, she's a shouting believer. She met my grandpa and she married him. And my grandpa was an old timey, I'm talking about sweat, slinging, spitting. He'd start off preaching, have that hair vitalis down to his head like a football helmet. And he wasn't done preaching until it was hanging down here somewhere. <laughs> Brother Malcolm, I heard him preach when I was a little boy and he preached till he's 82 years old and you couldn't understand nothing he's saying but you sure know, bless God, he meant what he's saying. <laughs> and he'd preach in them little old mountain churches and she'd sit there on the front row and shout, God gave her two boys its preachers. God let my mother, her daughter, marry a preacher. She's got five grandsons now that are preachers and two great-grandsons that are preachers because some things was done to her. But she said, I ain't gonna quit. And she kept on going. And then the Lord showed up and said, all right, some things were done to you. But now I'm going to see to it that some things are done for you. And there's sacrifice, and there's hurt, and there's pain. Mark it down. There's hurt and there's pain in this Christian journey. But He is the Lord. Glory. Y'all preaching me to death tonight. You know what Simon Peter wrote down in his last epistle? Hallelujah. You know the last thing Simon Peter, one of the last things he wrote in his in Second Peter, he wrote this little verse, for the Lord, Lord of God, I don't know if y'all, y'all done, I can tell, but I ain't done. I gotta I got say this. He said, for the Lord is not slack concerning his promises. As some men count slackness. You know what he said? He said, he promised me a whole lot. And I've failed him, but thank God he's never failed me. I appreciate the opportunity to be with you again tonight. And I do love your preacher. And I know that you love him as well. And uh, 
I will say that, amen. I will say that if he and I were the only ones that showed up tonight, I'd still had plenty to preach on, amen. <laughs> Would not have affected my part of the service at all. <laughs> but then again, he might have had some strong testifying to do as well. Y'all heard about the little country preacher, didn't you? Showed up to church one cold, stormy night and a prayer meeting and there wasn't nobody there but one old farmer. Did y'all hear about that? And he looked at that farmer and there's the only ones there. It's 10 after they supposed to start. He said, what do you want to do? That farmer said, well, preacher, I'll tell you right now. He said, if I went to the barn in the morning and there wasn't but one cow there, I'd still feed them. The preacher said, all right. So they went in and fella sat down. That preacher, I'm talking about, he reared back and preached the house down. I mean, he preached a pain off. Well, he preached for an hour and 15 minutes. Got done and he closed his Bible, looked at that farmer. He said, well, what do you think? Farmer put his hat on, pulled it down tight. He said, preacher, I told you I'd still feed that one cow, but I didn't tell you I'd give him everything in the blessed barn. <laughs> Reminds me of the story the little preacher was up preaching one Sunday morning and boy he got in a big way and just couldn't get out of the way. And kept on and on and on and on and on and on and finally the piano player over here she'd had enough. I'm talking about she'd had enough. She took that church hymnal praise God. She reared back threw it at him as hard as she could. The preacher stepped back and it went right by him and hit the organ player right in the head. Wham! Organ player laid out on the keys and hollered, hit me again, I can still hear him, hit me again. (laughs) Should have threw that Baptist hymnal, it's bigger, amen. All right, I I do appreciate you letting me be here. And uh, it's been a privilege. I've been preaching at Temple since Brother Malcolm first came. And it's been an honor to watch this place grow. It's been an honor to watch what God is doing at Temple Baptist Church. I know this goes without saying, but I know these dear folks that's been singing would testify right here. And I guess I'll say it so you'll know it. What you are enjoying is not happening everywhere. I just left Virginia last week. I was in a little mountain church up in Collinsville, Virginia. An auditorium seat over 600, and there was 50 gray-haired folks there every night. And they love the Lord, and they love God, and the Lord still meets with them. But ladies and gentlemen, you ought not take for granted what He's doing right here at Temple Baptist Church. You ought to be thankful for that. Amen. If you will, stand up with me tonight and stretch your legs for just a moment. And I want you to find the book of 2 Samuel and find chapter 11. 2 Samuel chapter 11. And I'm going to read a little more scripture tonight than normally I would. But I can tell by looking, a little Bible ain't going to hurt nobody in this crowd. Somebody say amen. Somebody, I mean, it's about the only time half of y'all going to read it, so let's go ahead and catch up while we're here, okay? <laughs> I seen dust flying when you went to 2 Samuel 11, so that's how, that's how I know this isn't going to hurt nobody. 
2 Samuel 11. If you're there in your Bible, say amen. I want to begin reading in verse number 2. And I want you to focus on the word. Look at it. Read it. I'll read it aloud and you follow along there where you are. It came to pass in an evening tide that David arose from off his bed and walked upon the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman washing herself. The woman was very beautiful to look upon, and David sent and inquired after the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? David sent messengers and took her. She came in unto him, and he lay with her, for she was purified from her uncleanness, and she returned unto her house. The woman conceived and sent and told David and said, I am with child. David sent to Joab saying, Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah was come unto him, David demanded of him how Joab did and how the people did and how the war prospered. David said to Uriah, Go down to thy house and wash thy feet. And Uriah departed out of the king's house and there followed him a mess of meat from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his Lord and went not down to his own house. He's a pretty good man, isn't he? When they had told David, saying, Uriah went not down into his house, David said unto Uriah, Camest thou not from thy journey? Why then didst thou not go down unto thine house? Uriah said, David, the ark and Israel and Judah abide in tents. My Lord Joab and thy servants of my Lord are encamped in the open fields. Shall I then go into mine house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As thou livest and as thy soul liveth, I will not do this thing. What a man of integrity. David said to Uriah, Tarry here today also, and tomorrow I will let thee depart. And so Uriah abode in Jerusalem that day and the morrow. And when David had called him, he did eat and drink before him, and he made him drunk. And at even he went out to lie on his bed with the servants of his Lord, but went not down unto his house. It came to pass in the morning that David wrote a letter to Joab, and sent it by the hand of Uriah. And he wrote in the letter saying, Set ye Uriah in the forefront of the hottest battle, and retire ye from him, or retreat, that he may be smitten and die. It came to pass when Joab observed the city, that he assigned Uriah unto a place where he knew that valiant men were. And the men of the city went out and fought with Joab, there fell some of the people of the servants of David, and Uriah the Hittite died also. Will you pray for me tonight? Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for the word of God. Lord, I want to thank you that this is your mind on paper. This is not all of your mind, but this is a piece of what you wanted us to know. God, I pray that as we open this sacred old book, God, I pray that this book would open us up as well. That, oh God, we'd not look through it and pick the pieces that we like, but God, may you look through us and pick apart the pieces that need to be taken out. 
God work in my heart tonight, work in the life of every believer and every unsaved person here. God, may you draw us, may you change us eternally. I don't just want to feel good when I wake up in the morning. I want to have something tonight that's going to change me into the image of Christ. Help us now, Lord. I'll love you and I'll thank you in Jesus' name and all of God's people said, amen. You can be seated. We have come tonight to a very familiar portion of Scripture. Matter of fact, if I could say this, it may be too familiar because sometimes when we think we know what something says, we miss oftentimes what it really has to say. And matter of fact, tonight, if you've got a Bible like I do, at the top of every page in your Bible, there are subtitles that tell you what's on that page. How many of you have got that in your Bible? When I open mine, it it says clearly at the top, it is stated, this is the account of David's adultery. That's what it says about 2 Samuel chapter 11. But I'll just be honest with you, that's a little bit narrow-minded because there's a whole lot more going on here than just what's happening in David's life. Sometimes we can get so caught up in the headlines that we miss the heart of the story. And it is true that this is a story about David's adultery, but that's only if you're David that's what it's about. If you are Bathsheba, this is a story about the day that your world was picked up, turned around, broken to a million pieces, and then put back together. If you are Joab, this is a story about a day that your king asked you to do something that you did not want to do, but you followed him in loyalty, but yet you regretted it every day thereafter. You are an unborn baby inside the womb of Bathsheba. This was a day that you never got to see the light of this world. For God, only day, only hours after it was conceived, God took this child through judgment. I'm trying to tell you, there's more that's happening here than what's happening in the life of David. How many of you give me an honest witness right here? Sometimes we get so caught up in the headlines that we miss the heart of the story. Yes, this is about David, but it's about a whole lot more than that. Matter of fact, I could talk to you tonight about David, and there's a lot to be learned here. I'll just be honest this evening. I could preach to you about Bathsheba. I don't think she's as innocent as she has been portrayed to be. She could have said no to David just like anybody else. She's not as innocent as she appears. I could preach to you about Nathan who shows up and stands in the will of God and pronounces judgment. I could preach about a lot of people in this text. But tonight I want to talk to you about a fella who is mentioned several times. Matter of fact, there's not much said other than the light that is shown on his integrity. And did you know that in all of your Bible, there's never one negative thing said about this fella by the name of Uriah. Be honest with you, he looks like a pretty good man, according to what I read. He was willing to sleep on the sidewalk because his fellow soldiers were in the field. He said, I'll not even go home because Joab and my captain and, and the ark of God is out in a tent. I have no I have no right to be at my house with my wife while my captain is suffering. 
There's no negative thing that could ever be said about Uriah. But yet in this passage of Scripture, Uriah is lied to. Somebody wake up and holler, amen. He is abused. Matter of fact, it kind of makes me angry because in this chapter, Uriah looks like a fool. He looks like a moron. He looks like he doesn't have a clue what's going on. And he is a pawn in David's escapades. Uriah goes back to serve his king and they put him on the front line of the battle and it is there that they retreat and Uriah's life is taken in a cold, calculated plan. He's murdered. I'm going to give you my title and I'd appreciate if I could get a good witness right here and it's not a setup, by the way, so don't feel like I'm doing that. Let me give you my title and I'm going to need a good amen. Here it is, y'all ready? Sometimes life is not fair. All right, half of y'all are trying to stay with me and the other half think I'm setting you up for something. Let me say it again. Life is not fair. Yeah, we're getting there. Let's try it one more time. Life is not fair. I was preaching a revival several months ago and on Tuesday night of the revival. You ever seen somebody in church that's having such a good time? Not only did they not care about embarrassing themselves, they didn't care about embarrassing anybody around them. Boy, we're having church and we're singing. There's this old girl off to my right of the auditorium and buddy, she was having herself a time in the house of God. Before I even got up to preach, she said, excuse me, pastor. She said, can I testify for just a minute? The man in charge of the meeting said, yes, ma'am, go ahead. She said, I just want to stop and praise God. She said, this church knows that I've been diagnosed with cancer. She said, this church knows that we've been praying. And this morning I went to my doctor and she said, the report came back. It's clear the cancer's gone and God has healed me from that cancer. (laughs) Praise God, we shouted. Thank God we rejoiced. I watched God heal my mother of cancer at the same age that her mother died from the same cancer. My mama came home from the doctor with the same diagnosis. It was a Wednesday night prayer meeting. She got on the altar and the men of the church anointed her with oil. I watched God heal my mama from cancer. I know, hey, hey, I know God can heal. We shouted and rejoiced over that dear lady's testimony. At the end of the service, I was shaking hands in the back of the auditorium and another lady came out and she took me by the hand. She said, can I see you and the pastor? I said, yes, ma'am. We stepped into a little side room and she said, I didn't want to say anything during church. She said, because I didn't want to rain on the parade. She said, but today I went and saw my doctor. And she said, today my doctor told me that I've got terminal cancer and it's everywhere And he said, I had just a few months at best to live. Ladies and gentlemen, life is not fair. One Sunday morning, the little church where I'm pastor, a family had been coming and I noticed this man came with his son all the time and this particular Sunday, he didn't have him with him. And I I just in conversation, I said, where's Zach this morning? His 15-year-old son. He said, preacher, Zach's not coming to church today and said I don't know if I can get him back at all 
I said, well, tell me why he's not wanting to come to church. Has something happened? He said, no, it's not what's bad about church. It's what's good about church. You see, about two months earlier, Zach's mother had gotten up one morning, left a note on the refrigerator and said, I'm done. I'm through. I'm gone. Don't look for me. I've got to find myself. And she left Zach and her daddy all alone. Zach told his dad, he said, when I come to church, he said, I get so angry because I see kids sitting with their mother. And I see families going to the altar. And I see people that have what I used to have. And I see people that have what I want more than anything. And he said, preacher, it's not what's bad about church, but it's what's good because life is not fair. Can I just say something to you tonight? I'm not getting on to you, but I want to say something tonight. Be real careful about what you complain about. Because many times what we consider a burden, somebody else would consider a blessing. I believe I'll try that over on this side and see if it goes any better. Sometimes what we call a burden, other people would call a blessing. We complain about a house payment while somebody huddles up under a bridge tonight. We complain about kids that act out and out of control while somebody else will go and put flowers on a little grave. Oh, we fuss and we whine about our job while a man looks at the bills and tells his wife, I don't know how we're going to make it this month. I'm trying to tell you that life is not fair. Ladies and gentlemen, you better mark it down right now. Life is not fair. Can I, how many of you, have lived long enough to know that the preacher's telling the truth tonight. (laughs) Let me show you three things out of this text. Y'all ready for some preaching tonight? Let me show you three things. First of all, let me show you the cause of an unfair life. There is a cause that makes life become unfair. First of all, let me give it to you like this. The very first cause of an unfair life is the curse that mankind is under. Now, let me say this to you this evening. For all of the suffering that is present in this world, for all of the hurt that is found on planet Earth, for all of the disease and all of the sickness and for all of the trouble, all of the deception, all of the lying, all of the hurt that can be found on this planet. Can I tell you, good friend, tonight that God did not not create this planet as you and I live in it this evening. Matter of fact, he created a world, glory, I'm about to preach myself happy. He created a world in which there was no cancer. He created a world in which there was no sickness. He created a world in which there was no lying or deception or hurt. He created a perfect world. But when man sinned in the garden, God the Father caused the world to be cursed by sin. And much of what you and I face tonight is nothing more than the product of living in a sin-cursed world. There was no hospitals in the Garden of Eden. There was no cancer found in God's perfect creation. There was no backbiting, no lying, no tricks, no shady behavior. He created a perfect world. But when man sinned, 
The Bible says that death came upon all men and all men must die and the thorns began to grow and the weeds began to take over and man began to die and our bodies began to become mortal and thank God it is the curse of sin that brings much of the difficulty that you and I face in life. We live in a sin-cursed world. I want to say to you also, that much of the reason that life is unfair is not just because of the curse, but I'm going to say something. I hope you get this tonight. It is because of the choices that other people make in our lives. I'm going to need some more help than that right there. I, I think there's a whole lot of people mad at God when the truth of the matter is it doesn't have anything to do with God. It has to do with the choices that other people have made around our lives. Oh, I I feel like preaching tonight. Can I tell you tonight that it is not always the will of God that gets carried out in our lives? I believe he is a great big sovereign God. Hey, thank the Lord. I know that he hung the world in place. He's got it all under control. But God also made man with a free will to choose as he does. Listen to me, listen to me well. The will of God does not always get performed in daily situations. Yeah, I can tell some of you don't believe me. Just, just let me ask you this. The countless thousands of children that will be abused and hurt and molested and neglected. Do you mean to tell me that's the will of God? That's not God's will for one second. That is a sin. It is wrong. It is against the will of God. It is against the law of God. But yet people have choices that they make on their own will. Many times we get so angry at God over what somebody else has done and the truth of the matter is it's not God's will. It is a choice that somebody else made. I was preaching several I guess it was been a year and a half ago now outside of Atlanta, Georgia in Marietta. And the lady came to me at the end of the service. And she said, preacher, why are you just preaching tonight? She said, the Holy Ghost sat down in my heart. She said, six months ago, my husband and my son was on their way home from church. A drunk driver crossed over the center line and killed them instantly on the highway. She said, I've been so angry at God. She said, I've been so bitter at God. I've been so ill against the Lord. But she said, tonight I realize it wasn't God. Hey, I hope you're listening. She said, it wasn't God that stopped in a liquor store and bought a 12 pack. It wasn't God that got behind the wheel of that car. It wasn't God that drove intoxicated down the highway. It wasn't God that went into the other lane. It was the choice that somebody else made. You might find out that many of the things that you're mad about, that you and God's on the same side. You know, we could read this text tonight and we could get angry that all of this has happened. We could get angry that God allowed David to do this with Bathsheba. We could get angry that God allowed David to plot the murder of Uriah. But I'd have to tell you that the Lord is on our side in this situation. While David was looking off the rooftop, it was the Lord that said, Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife. While David was calling her to his bedchamber, it was the Lord that said, Thou shalt not commit adultery. While David wrote out the plan to abandon 
It was God that said, thou shalt not commit murder. And many times we get so angry at God, but if we calm down, we realize he's on our side. But people have choices to make. And when people in your life make the wrong choices, it affects everyone in their life. Here's something, Brother Malcolm. Here's something the Bible says that when they withdrew from Uriah on the forefront of the battle, it says, and there fell some of the people of the servants of David. And Uriah just happened to be in that crowd. Look at me right here. It was Uriah's wife that David was trying to cover up the affair with. But do you realize that there were also men that died that day that didn't even know what Bathsheba looked like? There were men on the forefront of that battle that died that night that didn't even know who Uriah was. They had never seen the inside of King David's chamber. They had never sat before his throne. But because David made a choice, hey, I'm a preaching tonight whether you're listening or not, because David made a choice, there were innocent men murdered that had nothing to do with Bathsheba. Many times life becomes unfair because of the choices that people make that impact our lives. Now we'll say that although we live in a cursed world and although we live under the influence of other people's choices, I will say that there is nothing that comes into our life that cannot conform us into the image of Christ. You do realize, oh glory, you do realize that the only fellowship we have with Jesus is the fellowship of his sufferings. You do realize that tonight. I'm a blessed man. Can somebody say amen? I've got a beautiful wife that loves me and I do not doubt that. I've got a 10-year-old boy that thinks I hung the moon and y'all better not tell him no different, amen? I've got three wonderful coon dogs which coincidentally have all of their family tree right here in Coleman, Alabama. I should have brought them. We could have had a reunion. It would have been wonderful. I've got two beautiful paint horses that I love to ride. I I pastor a wonderful little church that loves me. And thank God I get to preach to my best friends every Sunday and every Thursday night. And God has been real good to me. God's given me a wonderful house out in the country to call home. Thank God he's been so good to me. But when I sit down to fellowship with the Lord... Do you realize it's not the blessings that he and I connect on, it's the sufferings that he and I connect with. I can thank him for my church, but he didn't have a church when he walked this planet. I can thank him for my house, but the Bible said that the foxes have dens and the birds have nests, but the Son of Man doesn't even have a place to lay his head. I can thank him for my friends and he'd say that all of his friends beside John forsook him at the cross. I can thank him for my blessings but it's not in my blessings that I am connected to the Savior but when I start to pour out my heart about how I've suffered, thank God he knows something about that. (laughs) I'd say, Lord, they lying about me and he'll say, oh yeah, I know about that. I can say, Lord, my best friends have forsaken me. And he'll say, oh, let me tell you about the day outside the judgment hall when Simon Peter cursed me and said he didn't even know who I was. I can say, Lord, I'm having a hard time and I don't know how I'm going to make it. And he can say, oh, let me tell you about the time that taxes were due and I didn't have any money at all, but the Father miraculously supplied.
of a fish. You see, all of our blessings are a blessing. But when it comes to conforming me into the image of Christ, it is those unfair events in life which cause me to be more like Jesus. (laughs) You can believe it or not, it's the truth. The cause of an unfair life. It's the curse, it's the choices that others make. But it all is used to conform me into his image. Now I want to show you my second thought. Not only the cause of an unfair life, but I want you to notice the checks and the balances of an unfair life. You know, one of the things that upsets me most about this chapter is that Uriah is a good man. Can I get a witness right there? I'm talking about he is a stand-up quality. He has character. He has integrity. He is a good man. But yet Uriah is treated like a pawn. He is treated like a fool. Matter of fact, there's no indication in the Bible that Uriah ever knew what even happened behind his back. He went and stood before David. He was honored to be there. Can you imagine how honored he was to sit and eat and drink at David's table and then carry a handwritten letter back to Joab? I mean, he thought he was being honored, but he was being manipulated. Boy, that burns me up to see somebody that's being so loyal, to see somebody that's being so true and they're used and they're being abused and he looks like a fool and he don't even know it. And it upsets me because, now listen, I know it's in the Bible now and we all know it, but I don't even know how many people actually knew that David had slept with Bathsheba. I don't know how many people knew outside of Joab that this had even taken place. It was all covered up. It was all swept under the rug. It was all cleaned up nice and pretty. It looked like an accident. And now Bathsheba is free to be David's wife. And it all looks like it went off without a hitch. But my Bible still says in Galatians 6, verse number 9, Be not deceived, God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, help me now, that shall he also reap. There's nobody to stand up for Uriah. Glory to God. There's nobody to say, David, you shouldn't have done that. There's nobody to tell Bathsheba, how dare you abandon your husband while he's fighting on the battlefield for his God and his country. There's nobody to make it right on Uriah's behalf. But ladies and gentlemen, don't you be deceived. Hey, 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 God is able to take care of an unfair life. (laughs) A little bony-fingered man of God shows up in chapter 12. And he walks in David's courtroom and David thinks it's all up under the rug where he left it. But a little bony-fingered, bald-headed man of God said, David, let me tell you a little story about a man that lived out in the country and he had just one little lamb and a rich man came by with thousands of lambs. But he took that poor man's one lamb. David got so angry. He said, who in the world was he? Why did he do it? And I want his life taken for what he's done. And Before David could spit the words out, Nathan said, thou art the man. And not only did he bring out David's guilt, but he said, because of what you've done, the sword shall never depart from your house. He said, God's keeping a record and you're going to pay for what you've done. Now I got to be honest. I'm not happy that David had to pay. I'm not rejoicing 
that the sword showed up in David's house. I'm not jumping up and down shouting because David got what was coming to him. But I tell you what does make me want to rejoice tonight is when a little old nobody like you, glory to God, when a little old nobody like Uriah is done wrong and nobody seems to care, when a little old nobody like Uriah is moved around like a pawn and his loss is swept under the rug, I sure am glad there's a great big God in glory who's watching over little old nobodies and those who have done them wrong, they have to answer to God. Can we just be honest in Coleman tonight? Ain't nobody here but us. Can we just be honest? Somebody hurts me. Praise God. I want to see them hurt as bad as they hurt me. I thought we was going to be honest, but I guess that dies four rows deep tonight. Let's try that again. When somebody hurts me, I want them to hurt as bad as they've hurt me. Praise God. Hey, you want to talk about me? You're going to find out my cell phone works too. Amen. I'll put you on Facebook without saying your name, praise God. (laughs) Rolling my eyes, L-O-L, hashtag drama, hashtag whatever, hashtag who she thinks she is. (laughs) Amen. Y'all don't look at me like that. (laughs) Yeah. You want to mess with me? You're going to find out there's two in this fight. They ain't spiritual, Brother Malcolm, but I know them better than this. Y'all remind me of the woman that was leaving to go to work one morning and went to pull out of her driveway and this little fella in this long, uh, expensive foreign car whooped off and cut her off right in front of her driveway. Made her spill her coffee all over her outfit. They got out on the interstate and here he come again, cut her off, got right in front of her. All the way to where, when he got off, when she got off the exit, he got off in front of her and brake checked her getting off the interstate. <laughs> to beat it all, they got to work and he pulls in and shoot cuts right in her parking place. She said, if that didn't be bad enough, when she walked by his car, it got paint all over her key. Somebody say amen. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Is this thing on? Is this PA working tonight? (laughs) You want to mess with me? You're going to find out I ain't always walking in the spirit. You're going to find out I do not mind scrapping with you and getting down and getting dirty and making revenge an option and let's get it settled. But how many people live their life angry and bitter because... They hurt me, but they never got what they should have got. They destroyed me, and they never had to pay. They took my life and broke it into a million pieces, and now they're going on like nothing ever even happened. It ain't fair. It ain't right. I come to tell somebody in the Coleman Civic Center that there's a God in glory. He's watching over your life, and you don't know what God's doing on your behalf. You say, preacher, you say, 
She said that and he did that and God knows what they did. And I want you to look at me. You don't know what God's done in their life. You don't know the heartache they've suffered behind closed doors. You don't know what wakes them up at midnight with a cold sweat on their brow. You don't know how they've had to pay in private. You better trust God. He is the Lord. He will take care of his own. Uriah died never able to stand up for himself. But can anybody shout glory? Now, we ain't rejoicing that David hurt, but can anybody shout glory that God stands up for those that cannot stand up for themselves? Brother Mike, I've got a friend that pastors over in Greenwood, South Carolina. Had a fella coming to the church that was a, a professional mixed martial arts fighter. Whoa, I'm talking about Bruce Lee. Or for all you rednecks, I'm talking about Chuck Norris. Amen. Did you know that one time Chuck Norris ran around the world and punched himself in the back of the head? That is a documented fact. That really did happen. <laughs> some of them may laugh them. Some are like, man, that's awesome. That is awesome. I know it's true. I read it on the internet. It's got to be true. (laughs) This fella joined my buddy's church and I'm talking about got trophies piled up, mixed martial arts. Some things happened at church that was more than I could tell in mixed company and my friend had to call this guy and told him, said, look, said, I love you and said, we want to help you. Said, but you can't come back to church until you get some things right. So we got to, and how many know, you can't let everything go by. He said, there's some things that's got to be fixed. We got to get it right. On the phone, on the phone, old Chuck Norris says, ain't no preacher going to tell me where I can and can't go. And said, sure ain't no preacher going to tell me what to do. He said, I'll tell you what called him, called that preacher by name. He said, next time I see you, he said, I'm going to whoop your tail. He said, matter of fact, not only am I going to whoop your tail, he said, I'm going to leave you in the ditch, boy. He said, you better hope I don't run into you at Walmart. I hop, it don't matter. He said, I'm going to whoop your hind end. That's what he told the pastor. Well, a couple of weeks went by and this mixed martial arts fighter is walking to the store with his 12-year-old stepson. A pickup truck comes by and doesn't move over and, and his mirror just inches and shoot brushes by. Oh, bad boy walking up the road. Well, you, you rednecks know what he did. I ain't even got to tell you what he did to the man in the truck. Hollers at him. The guy in the truck stops. Now, let me just go ahead and tell you, that's a bad sign. Okay, He puts it in reverse, backs up, and gets out. That too is a bad sign. He gets out. Old Bruce Lee gets down in the position. And the redneck in the pickup truck commences to whooping the eternal snot out of Bruce Lee. <laughs> Amen. I'm telling some of y'all like this better than anything I have told all week. <laughs> I mean, beats him down to a pulp in the ditch. 
goes back to his truck, gets his business card out of the sun visor. (laughs) That's a bad sign. Goes back, lays it on his bloody nose and says, if you ever need any more, you'll know where to get a hold of me. (laughs) Bruce Lee recovers and calls my pastor friend and said, I just thought I'd let you know. Don't worry about that whooping I said I was going to give you. Let's just let bygones be bygones and let's let that die in the past. (laughs) I'm trying to tell you that God can handle your business for you. And some of you are destroying what's left of your life trying to get even with somebody that tore up the first half. And you are infecting everyone around you with your hate and your bitterness and your anger. And I come by to tell somebody tonight, let go and let God. Don't live for revenge. Don't live to see them suffer. Just let the Lord bring healing in your life and he'll give them whatever they've got coming to them. You see, Uriah never could stand up and say, hey, David, what's up? He never could stand up and say, Bathsheba, how'd you, how could you do that? Uriah never had a chance to speak his peace. But aren't you glad that God did for Uriah what he could not do for himself? That's pretty good, ain't it? Number three, watch this. I can't leave you there. We see the checks and the balances of this unfair life. But number three, glory. There is a cure for this unfair life. Now, we read it, but I, you probably didn't catch it. Let's read it again. Verse, here's the cure for an unfair life. Verse 17. And the men of the city went out and fought with Joab, and there fell some of the people of the servants of David, and Uriah the Hittite died also. Well, I can tell y'all still ain't figured it out. Let me read it again. There's a cure for an unfair life. And Uriah the Hittite died also. (laughs) You say, preacher, how's that the cure? Let me explain. Uriah is known as Uriah the what? The Hittite. Anybody remember from Sunday school when you're studying all them ites? Them Jebusites, them them, them Jezerites, them Hittites, them Skeeterbites. Y'all remember all them bites (laughs) in Sunday school? I love, when I was a kid, how many of you went to old timey Sunday school where your teacher had a manila envelope and they had that flannel graph board and the same fella that was Joseph last week is going to be Jesus this week? You know what I'm talking about? And next week he's going to be, I mean, he had a beard, therefore he was any man in the Bible he needed to be. Does anybody remember that? Holler at me. Uh-huh. Y'all got screens and flip screens. and all. No, we had, a, we had a man with a beard in a manila envelope when I was a kid. <laughs> I remember being five thinking that, 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 that was Joseph last week no, no honey that's Moses <laughs> remember in Sunday school and they remember they, they talked about all them ites was to be killed and stomped out of the land of Canaan Uriah is a Hittite but what is he doing <laughs> glory to God what is he doing in the army of God 
What is Uriah doing with loyalty to David? He is honoring the Ark of the Covenant. What's Uriah doing hanging out in Israel? I'll tell you what he's doing. He's a Hittite that deserved to die the death of a pagan person. But somewhere in his past, Uriah the Hittite, glory, said farewell to the gods of the Hittites and said hello to the God of Israel. You see, he was a Hittite by nature, but he was chosen and he made a choice to be in the army of the Lord. Is there anybody in here tonight that wouldn't realize we don't deserve to be in this thing? We don't have any right to this thing, but thank God he loved me enough that he let me transfer my loyalty. Now I'm going somewhere. If Uriah is a Hittite who is now worshiping Jehovah, he's saved. Somebody tell me where saved people go when they die. (laughs) See, I'm trying to tell you that yes, he lived in an unfair world and yes, he had an unfair life. And things happened to him that never should have happened. But oh, glory to God, before his body ever fell in death that day, Uriah was already standing on a street of gold. He was already in another world. He was already in a place that the Lord had prepared for him. Uriah, I know that life's been unfair. And I know that your king lied to you here. But guess what, Uriah? You've got a king on that side that never has lied. Matter of fact, there is no shadow of darkness in him. Uriah, I know that over here your captain Joab took your life. But thank God over there, your captain Jesus, he's going to lay down his life for your life. Uriah, I know that over here Bathsheba broke your heart and she destroyed your world. But Uriah, you're in a place now where there's no sorrow, there's no crying, there's no more tears. Thank God, Uriah, this unfair life is over and you're now in a land that is fairer than day. You see, the cure for an unfair life is that if we're saved, one day we're going to a place that's fairer than day. I've got a dear friend. I've got a dear friend. Come on, piano player, where you at? He's always right there. I'm looking for him on the front. He's always covert, about four rows back. I've got a dear friend out in Texas, Brother Bob Van Dyke. Brother Bob is a, he is a statesman. When you meet him, he's tall and got snow white hair always in place. And it doesn't matter if he's got on blue jeans and a button up or a suit. He always looks like he just stepped stepped out of the White House or some powerful place. He's just a statesman of a man. Brother Bob's one of the greatest preachers that I've ever heard preach. He came to our little church and preached a series on Philippians. And I'm talking about just mind-blowing the truth and the power this man has in his preaching. He asked me to come to his church and preach for him in their September Jubilee. And I flew into Houston and I drove up to Spring and I went to the Candlestick Baptist Church. And there was a seven, eight hundred seat auditorium, a campus on over 20 acres in the middle of Spring, Texas, that suburb of Houston. 
And I went in that building, and in that building that was seat seven or eight hundred, <clears throat> there was 40, 45, maybe 50 people. Brother Bob and I began to talk. Back in the early 70s, or I should say mid-70s, about 75 or 76, that church was so full that they couldn't get them all in, even in the balcony. People get saved every week. I'm talking about packed out like we are in here tonight. Brother Bob was preaching all over the country, and he really is one of the greatest preachers I've ever heard. He's preaching all over the country. They had two sons, and his wife was expecting their third, and they had little Joshua. He was a handful, he was a card, he was always into something, just kept everybody in stitches laughing in the whole church. Joshua got about five and he began to repeat himself. He'd say something and he'd stop mid-sentence. And then he'd say it again and he'd stop shy of where he stopped the first time. And for a long time they thought he was doing it just just because he was mischievous. Finally, they took him to the doctor and they found out that little Joshua had had thousands of many strokes in his brain. And his condition began to worsen. It got to the point that Joshua could no longer function. And when I met Joshua, this was three years ago, when I met Joshua, he's now six foot four, about 280 pounds. And inside the mind of Joshua, y'all remember back when we had rabbit ears before all this digital and you turn the TV on a station that's not a station and just... That's what Joshua hears 24 hours a day. His thoughts are scattered. He can no longer speak. And he's full of rage and he's full of anger and he's full of hate because he don't understand what's happening. He can't communicate it. And as Joshua began to worsen, Bob began to take care of his son. And as he began to take care of his son, the church began to go down. You know, I, ho- I, hope, I, ain't, I hope I ain't boring nobody tonight. But, but I'm just going to be, be real honest. Isn't it amazing, Brother Malcolm, isn't it amazing that when you first go into a trial, everybody gets on board with you? <laughs> well, I'm going to say... When you first go into a valley, everybody jumps on board. We're there for you. We're going to help you. And then, when it don't stop in a month, and then when a year turns into two, and two years turns into three, and three years turn into ten, everybody else's life keeps going and yours stays there. The church emptied out with all but just a handful. And Brother Bob taking care of that boy. We drove up to their house, big, beautiful place, big, beautiful Texas ranch home. And we drove right past that and we went around back to a little block building, about 15 by 20, with a big steel door on the front of it. And we pulled in, Brother Bob said, that's the house where my wife lives. He said, but Joshua and I live back here in the back. He hates his mom. She's the sweetest, godliest lady I've ever met. But he hates her. Matter of fact, the week before I got there, he had taken a rock, a 10, 15-pound rock. He had busted every window out of that house. And when Bob finally found him, he's laying in the yard, hands bleeding, 
cried. And Bob picked him up and he rubbed his face, touched his daddy's face and laid on his chest the anger and the rage and he has no way to explain it or contain it. And Brother Malcolm, I stepped in that little 10 by 15 block building, no windows and a steel door. There's a mattress in the corner. There's a bed on that side. And there Joshua sat watching a 14-inch black and white TV. Looney Tunes. Just on the, on the DVD over and over. And he's sitting Indian style, cross-legged on the floor, 32 years old, watching Looney Tunes. And he got up and he ran over and he hugged his daddy and stroked Brother Bob's hair and held him and rubbed him. And he went back to watching Looney Tunes. And I thought to myself, this boy has no idea that his dad's life has been put on hold 27 years ago. You say, I'd put him in a home. Well, just wait just wait till that comes to your house before you tell me what you do. And Brother Bob wept. And he loved Joshua. And I cried with him and we sat in that little prison cell of an apartment. And I drove out of that place that day and thought to myself, life is not fair. What do you say to a man who's given his life to care for a child that has no idea what life is even about? You're going to quote him Romans 8, 28. I hope somebody punches you in the nose if you do. You're going to tell him that God's got a plan like he don't know that. You're going to tell him that it's all going to work out. What are you going to say to him? I'll tell you what you say. You say, life's not fair. But guess what? <laughs> There's coming a day There's coming a day where we won't have little block apartments, but we'll have mansions. There's coming a day where Joshua's going to understand just like you and I do. There's coming a day when all the hurt and the heartache of this world is going to melt in the holiness of His presence. And an unfair life is going to be traded for a land that's fairer than day. Look at me right here. I'm done. Y'all come on. Can y'all do what a day that'll be? Can I tell you tonight, there's a lot of things in life that you're never going to understand. I need, I need a witness from some folks that's lived. There's a lot of things in life you're never going to understand. And listen to me. There's a lot of things that may never get fixed on this side. But you just have to know that if we're saved, we're not living for this world anyway. We're living for another world. Now somebody tonight, somebody tonight needs to bring years of bitterness and leave it on this altar. You need to bring years of resentment and say, God, I'm tired of trying to get even. I'm going to put it in your hands. Somebody needs to come tonight and say, Lord, help me not to live for this world, but help me just to trust you through this world and know that there's a better one coming. Thank God. Heaven's our hope. Yes, sir.
This world's not my home. Yes. I'm just a passenger. Bless you, Lord. <laughs> Thank you. Won't you stand up with me? Come on, right now. Hundreds of people ought to be filling up this altar in these aisles. Bring that bitterness. Bring that anger. Bring that resentment. Leave it on this altar. Let God handle your problems for you. You broken here tonight? Things falling apart that you can't find the pieces, let alone put them back together? Somebody will come pray with you. There's hope. There's healing. And it may not be found until we get to heaven. But you need to cling to the Lord and walk with